Hey everyone, it's Cam Hurt, host of the Best Show Ever podcast, and we have got a second season coming out very soon that I am very excited about. We've got some very cool special guests, including musical acts that we all love, like Karina Reichman, Daniel Donato, Jake Brownstein from Eggy, Rick and Peter from Goose, and many more. Tune in for new episodes dropping on Osiris Media March 5th on the Best Show Ever podcast. Hi, listeners. I want to tell you about a cause that I'm involved with at Heritage Radio Network. HRN is celebrating its 15th year, and to celebrate, we're deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org slash 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org slash 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Hey, everyone. This is Steve. Thank you for listening to this episode of 36 from the Vault. Uh, I just want to do a quick disclaimer. Um, This is our tour opening, and... When you start a tour, sometimes your equipment doesn't work <laughs> very well. So when you listen to this episode, you might notice that it sounds like I am talking over a really bad Skype connection while, you know, bound and gagged in a cabinet somewhere. Uh, Rob sounds amazing, crystal clear, but I'm a little weird sounding. So apologies for that. We had some technical difficulties here, but hopefully you'll still enjoy the episode And I promise that uh, on our next episode, we will make things absolutely perfect. Enjoy the show. I'm Winston Cook-Wilson. I'm Andy Cook. And I'm Sam Sadomsky. And we are the hosts of Late Era, a new music podcast from Osiris Media exploring the undiscussed, underappreciated, and sometimes unfathomable late career work from the artists we love. As critics, musicians, and fans, we're inspired by the artists who maintained a vision throughout their careers, aging with grace and finding new ways to channel the muse. But we're just as fascinated by the ill-advised experiments, the inscrutable rock operas, the blues cover albums, the sudden, inexplicable shifts to wearing fedoras and other strange hats and press photos. On Late Era, we'll follow these trajectories leaving no stone unturned and no question unasked. Each episode will explore a particular album, from Billy Joel going classical to Joni Mitchell's synth experiment to Miles Davis's hip-hop phase and Jethro Tull's 90s concept album about their own website. A domain where Things will get weird, but hopefully we'll also introduce you to a few gems. Join us this summer on Late Era as we start our journey into the depths of our record collections and the most uncanny corners of pop music history. See you soon. As you've probably guessed about two 40-something guys with the Grateful Dead podcast, both Steve and I are bearded gentlemen. But we're professional wooks, and we like to keep those beards sharp and clean. 
The thing is, when you're only shaving your neck, buying razors at the store especially feels like a hassle. That's why I'm excited about Harry's. I got a fancy new razor in the mail from Harry's, gave it a try, and it was a huge upgrade over my dirty old blade. The shaving gel was also a treat. I tend to be a stingy store brand X kind of guy, so using something with an actual scent and a smooth lather, it was like going to the barbershop. At a time when I'm really avoiding trips to the store, getting quality shaving supplies shipped to my house is a real luxury. Harry's gives you quality, durable blades at a fair price. Just $2 a blade. The refills are delivered to you on your own schedule, with or without a subscription, which is great for us bearded dudes who don't need to buy new blades as often. They also have a 100% guarantee. If you don't love your shave, let them know, and you'll receive a full refund. And 1% of all Harry's proceeds go to nonprofits, providing healthcare access for men and veterans. Now you can join the 10 million people who have tried Harry's with a special trial offer. Listeners can redeem their Harry's trial set at harrys.com slash 36FTV. You're going to get a weighted ergonomic handle for a firm grip, a five-blade razor with a lubricating strip and trimmer blade, rich lathering shave gel with aloe to keep your skin hydrated, and a travel blade cover to keep your razor dry and easy to grab on the go. So go to harrys.com slash 36FTV to start shaving better today. So you know, like, like what they say about the first show of the tour. They always say like that's the show you don't want to go to, right? Because like the band is really rusty, and uh, you know, I feel like our band is is, is going to be pretty rusty, like for at least half of this episode. Yeah, jam bands especially typically don't start strong, uh, particularly jam bands that don't right. that don't practice much, and. Uh, <laughs> I think the, the Grateful Dead fall into that category, and I well, it, it's not like we've been, you know, holing up in our rehearsal space and talking about random dead shows the last couple months. So right, uh, yeah, we're we're, we're going to take a little while to warm up, get our legs back too. I think. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I feel like by like you know our Dick's Picks eight, Dick's Picks nine episode, you know, we had the we had the telepathy going on. We knew, okay, Rob's going to solo here, I'm going to solo there. We didn't. You know, we had the unspoken communication going on. And then you take a break. You go off to your lair. I go off to mine. You got to you gotta get back to that telepathy. I think we'll get back there sooner than we did in our first season. Because that was like, you know, we just got the band together. And we had to play gigs just to get our sea legs. We know how to do it. But, you know, we might really not know what we're doing here for a little bit in this episode. There might be some bum, some bum you know, notes, missing some cues. Yeah talking over each other a lot yeah you know i've been like running some scales by just like talking about the dead to my kids and you know it's not the same steve they just they don't they don't give me that that uh you know conversational volley i'm I'm, i need i that i crave when i'm talking about some hot dead shows yeah i'm i'll get there the first set will be a little a little stiff i think but second set will be rolling yeah it'll be a little stiff well did you like take a sabbatical at all from the dead during our break like, you like i'm not gonna listen to the dead yeah. for a little walk i want i want to be fresh i think i did I, I i bet it lasted about 48 hours and this is like <laughs> this is just always the way with the dead or with fish those two bands in particular where every time i think i'm sick of them it literally just takes until somebody like sends out a tweet that says 
oh, hey, you got to hear this, you know, 1973 eyes. <laughs> and I, I just can't resist. I'm like, oh, yeah, I'm going to click on that. And then five minutes later, I'm like, oh, wait, I was going to take a break from the dead, wasn't I? Oh, well. So, no, the, uh, I would say my dead listening went down, you know, 25, 30%, but uh, the, it was not a sabbatical in any sense. I unplugged for a little while. I took a step back. You know, I know there's people listening to this that probably listen to the dead every day. And sure they not. are repulsed by the idea <laughs> that you would ever take a break from the dead. But, like, I, you know, I don't listen to anybody every day. And I, I'll say, like, you know, last season I was listening to the dead. I listened to them pretty regularly for, you know, several months. And it wasn't just dick's picks. It was, like, I just got into a dead frame of mind. Then I had to take a step back a little bit from the dead. But the thing is, is that, you know, June came around. Mm. And you... you in, you know, I'm hanging out in my backyard all the time. I'm having cocktails, <laughs> enjoying the sun and the fun. And it's like, are you not going to throw on like a sweet 70s era dead show? Like in that kind of environment? It's like impossible. So I, I, I totally just like slipped back in. Absolutely. Into my old habits. Yeah. The weather has been a big uh, a big force. We did a, a, a poll actually, like during our break that that turned out, you know, pretty interestingly. We pitted May against July for what the best month is to listen to the dead and July inched it out. So yeah, it's this time of year where once you start spending a lot of time outside and you got that summer wind uh, blowing on you, it's like they're, they're the best band to put on, right? Yeah, I think so. I mean, wasn't there like a, it was sort of like a weird choice too. Like it was November or something, <laughs> Isn't it like a winter month. I put in October and December. December was like uh, just a control group to test for any any narcs i don't know anybody who listens to the dead uh in december or i mean people listen to the dead in december but would say oh december christmas season that's the best time to listen to the dead ironic i guess since we're covering a december uh, grateful dead show today yeah but uh that's true october i, I think i actually voted for october because i kind of like a fall dead show i think they're a very good fall band uh it's it's almost like there's different types of dead or different eras of dead that fit different seasons too like fall is definitely more like a folksy dead whereas like july i feel like is like the like the the hot more rocking dead right i was gonna say like you want to listen to brent i think in like july you know you want to you want bearded soulful raspy silky (laughs) you want all those things yeah, and then like in the fall, maybe you want more sixties. Yeah, you know, like it's I, that seems like a good thing. I wonder if the Dead ever considered recording like holiday music. <laughs> you know, like you know, like like if Jer- like Jerry dressing as Santa <laughs> on like an album cover, it's too easy. Yeah, playing, doing like a a really really long version of the Twelve Days of Christmas. <laughs> you know, like that song is interminable anyway. But then there's like a sweet. Five minute Jerry guitar solo between right. each verse. It's no longer you know, than like, uh, Desolation Row, right? Uh, it feels <laughs> like it. <laughs> I don't know if it actually is. Uh, I think it's time to introduce the show. This is 36 from the Vault, presented by Osiris. This is a podcast about the just exactly perfect brothers band. Exactly. Uh, it, if you uh, haven't listened to the show before, as we've alluded, you know, we took a, a hiatus, I guess, after our first season. Uh, and now we're back. We're 
calling this our summer tour. You know, our first episode is going up in mid-July. And, I mean, the season's going to last, I guess, well into uh, the fall season. You know, I, I think we're going to end, like, in November. But we're going to call the whole thing right. our summer. It starts in the summer. You know, no one... Right. No one else is touring right now except us. We're the only <laughs> ones with the guts to tour right now. No, no. It's not about guts. Of course, we're, we're glad people are not going to shows right now. As much as Rob and I both miss going to shows as much as I'm sure all you do, too. But, you know, we have to look out for each other and, you know, abstain for now. But fortunately, there's like all these dicks picks for us exactly. to get into. The dead left us with thousands of shows to listen to. And what's more socially distant than listening to a show from 43 years ago? All the- exactly. You can't, you know, like, and by the way, this, we're talking about Dick's Picks 10 in this episode, which is December 29th, 1977, Winterland Ballroom, San Francisco, California, with a little dash of 1230. I'm guessing that there were all sorts of viruses circulating at Winterland. Yeah, the work flu was a thing back then, too, right? Yeah, and, you know, yeah, exactly. And, but, you know, we're not going to catch any of those viruses just by listening to the show, you know, but I I think you can pick up some of the Winterland vibe when you listen to this, when you listen to this tape. And I think, and I feel like that is the big selling point of the show. I don't want to, like, give away my opinion too much. Well, I guess I am. (laughs) My general feeling about this show, uh, I feel like this is actually a good tour opener for us because um, it's a pretty safe show in a lot of ways. It's like not too challenging. It goes down very easily. Um, I would say, generally speaking, for me, that there are no real valleys in this show, but there aren't really any like extreme peaks Mm -hmm. either. It's like a pretty even, consistent listen, uh, which... Obviously has a lot of attributes, especially when we're talking about 77 Dead. Although, on the other side of the coin, consistency isn't always a good thing with the dead. Sometimes you want those peaks and and even the valleys uh, that come with this band. So, um, I don't know how you feel. Maybe you want to keep your feelings a little closer to the vest than me. But, you know, it's going to be a fun show to talk about. I'll I'll, I'll tease my opinion on on the set. I, I think it's kind of a checklist show, right? A, a checklist volume in the Dick's Pick series where, you know, Dick is kind of, he's, he's getting to some songs he hasn't gotten to yet. He's he's bringing us a show from the Winterland, which is, of course, one of, if not the iconic Grateful Dead venue in San Francisco. Uh, and yeah, it's just, got, it's got, like as you say, a lot of like really nice, solid versions of songs and Nothing that is really like a legendary version, but you know that's okay. It's got a a really nice, consistent vibe throughout the whole thing that I appreciate. And yeah, it's a great way to kick off season number two of the show here. Thank you. 
Hi, this is Chad Nicefield. And this is Justin Press. We're the host of Making Waves, the Shiprock Podcast, a part of the Sound Talent Media Podcast Network. We're inviting you to sail away with us on an epic journey in musical enlightenment. Every week, we bring you only the best artists in rock music and discuss everything from the cruise to the stage to the saga of being a professional recording artist. We'll have lots of special guests along the way, so tune in every week. Your stateroom is available every Monday morning, so welcome aboard. Easing into it, coming back with the warm embrace of a 77 deck yeah, show. Exactly. Along with that. Um, so, this Dick's Picks release it was released on February 26, 1998, and it was recorded by the great Betty Cantor Jackson. And I feel like you can tell when you listen to the show that Betty did it. There's just something about her recordings that. I feel like her shows always sound the best. I mean, like, I guess you could say that about Owsley, too. You know, like, they're, he's another legendary, uh, you know, taper for the dead. Um, but I just feel like her shows always have, like, a great bottom end. They always sound really mm-hmm. warm and buttery. And I think that's one of the great things about this Dick's Picks. I mean, along with just the quality of the performance, like, it sounds really Yeah, good. I think it's kind of like a serendipity, too, of Betty's strengths as a recording engineer and the dead strengths at the time because yeah like warm is the word that comes to mind for me too uh and and it's just like really well balanced in a way that some other eras of the dead aren't even soundboard recordings uh and it just you know this is a really laid-back show and i in in a laid-back venue and i think you know she does a great job of capturing that without you know putting anybody too high in the mix or disrupting the balance. You know, Owsley was the perfect engineer for his time because it was a much more aggressive dead. And I think he was a a much more aggressive engineer too. (laughs) And so you get these like really in your face and psychedelic recordings and, you know, the Betty recordings, the Betty boards, they're just, they're nice and smooth. They go down real easy. Uh, And so it was a, you know, good timing on both sides. It's interesting you said laid back because I actually feel like this show, it's not aggressive in the way that like a late 60s show is aggressive where they're maybe being more abrasive in a way or more experimental. But it is aggressive in terms of like it feeling very much like a mm-hmm. big rock show. Um, and we'll get into this when we talk about the show that like, I feel like there's like a lot of, you know, arena rock moments. Like this is this feels like arena rock dead to me. You know they're not playing in an arena literally, but uh, yeah, you feel that there's like a level of polish in a way that like a lot of dead eras don't have, and like they're really kind of going for again those like kind of big rock moments mm-hmm. at various points, which I think is pretty satisfying at times. And also maybe some people would say like, well, it's not quite like it's not mind blowing in the way that maybe the best dead shows are, but it's more satisfying maybe in a more kind of direct yeah no i hear you i feel like we talked about you know in the the first brent show we covered was 79 and we talked about you know when did the dead's 80s actually begin and i think we sort of agreed that it was when brent joined the band in 79 and they started you know shifting in sound but i was thinking about it with this show too that it feels like there's the seeds of the dead's 80s are already starting to crop up here where they're I want to say more professional, but that's totally on the relative scale of 
dead professionalism because of course there's still long periods of tuning and songs that go completely sideways but there's something that's just a little bit more like mature and uh confident and also but also a little more structured in a way that i think takes a little bit of the excitement and the edge off the show uh and and that's something that i feel like they kind of got I don't, I don't want to say trapped in in the 80s, but it sort of defined the 80s. Like there was more structure to the sets and more, uh, you know, playing inside the box and making the same set list distru- uh, decisions and things like that. And I think you're starting to see that here almost in a way that I don't think you even see in May 77. Like I feel like there's a huge difference from May 77 to, to this show in December, which is really fascinating to hear. Yeah, totally. Yeah, I'm excited to kind of explore that more once we get to the set. I think with this album, what makes it unique for Dick's Picks is that it's the first one where it's a show plus filler material from another show. And it's interesting because it's not the complete show. They cut two songs. It must have been The Roses and Sunrise. Of course, they cut the Donna (laughs) song. Katana song has to go. Sunrise, I believe, that was on Dixon Mix 3. Another 77 show. wasn't kept for this one um but they did put on some really good material from 12.3 and i would argue that maybe my favorite song from the whole record is from the 12.30 yeah. show or at least like one of my favorites um so yeah i i guess they were trying to make room maybe for the extra songs and they also just like wanted to uh, exclude Donna again <laughs> right. from a Dick's picks, unfortunately, Dick's Donna. which yeah. is sad, you know. Yeah, well, exactly. More yeah, Donna. Yeah, I mean, erasure. to play devil's advocate, like Sunrise doesn't really change that much from version to version. <laughs> and I think, I think what was right. going on here was really just down to like the limitations of a uh, CD length. Um, it, I think, was important to Dick and the other people putting this set together that this whole song suite we're going to get to uh, on disc two of this set, basically the the plane and the band bookends, uh, that that all fits on one CD. And that's like a, probably like a 50, 55 minute segment of music, right? So if you were going to do the entire show, you would have ended up either breaking that in half or having a really short second disc <laughs> or putting the stuff from the 30th in the middle of this of this show. I don't know. I mean there were a lot of other ways to do it. It's funny to me that the, you know the, the dead are 10 volumes into this series and they still haven't really settled on a format for how they're going to put these shows out. Like they've tried just doing the highlights, they've tried compiling the highlights from a run of shows, they've tried doing the complete show of course and it's like they're still tweaking the formula uh but this one i like because it it reminds me of old tape trading days where 
Uh, you know, you would have shows sometimes or sets that wouldn't quite fill up a tape. So it was always good, like tra- tape trader behavior to fill up the open space on the tape with something you really loved from your collection that you wanted, you know, the your 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 trading partner to hear. Uh, so I kind of like that this has filler in the way that an old you know, dead exchange would have where it's, you know, mostly the 29th, but then Dick's like, you know, here, let me slide on these 45 minutes from the 30th as well. Well, and it also opens the door to something we often like to do on this show, which is to quibble with the show (laughs) that was picked for the Dick's picks because it opens the door to like us talking about 1230, maybe being a better choice uh, for the overall show. I mean, I, I will say too, like to kind of go back to what you were saying about preserving, you know, that chunk in the middle of the plane in the band section, basically of the show. My counter to that would just be like, how about cutting one of the Chuck <laughs> Berry songs and uh, putting on sunrise, you know, like did we need the double berry in this show? I mean, I guess it's, it's not, not a triple berry because we have had triple berries. <laughs> you know, so this is restrained by comparison. So far. Yeah. You know, and it's like, you can leave in promised land. That's like a classic dead Chuck Berry song, but like the Johnny be good. <laughs> Did we need that one dick? I would yeah. say probably not, but you know, we can talk about that <laughs> when we get to the show. Um, I feel like a big thing we want to talk about uh, as we set up uh, this record is talking yeah. about Winterland uh, because that is, uh, I mean, is that the iconic dead venue? I mean, it'd be that or like, you know, like right. Phil Morris, I, think I guess. Both Bill Graham at I, I think it is for the 70s, and you can kind of go through every decade almost of the dead and come up with a different iconic venue. So, you know, like the Fillmore, the Fillmore and the Fillmore East, you know, the math gets a little funny, but very much feels like 69, 70 dead to me is like where that was really represented. And then Winterland, even though they started playing at Winterland, you know, in the 60s, uh, the 70s is really where Winterland became like their home base, right? Like this is this is their their home field uh, where they're playing on their terms, right? Uh, and I, you know, it'd be a yeah, good question what the answer would be for that in the 80s and 90s, but you know, it's usually something on the West Coast. It'd probably be Shoreline, I would imagine. Uh, you know what? Or like I guess, or maybe like yeah. Massesburg Garden. You know, yeah, by you the end could of the go 80s. that way too. I mean, I was. That's pretty big. I mean, it seems like, like for Bill Graham anyway, like this was apparently his favorite venue. Like, like in uh, his book, he talks about how this was the venue that was the closest mm-hmm. to his heart, and how a lot of it had to do with how it was relatively big. I think it was bigger than the Fillmore Theaters. It was like a, I think it was a capacity of yeah. five thousand people. I think the Fillmore Fillmores. I feel like were maybe like maybe. Yeah, and he specifically so, opened it. up Winterland to be like the next tier up. Like for bands that were too too big for the film right. anymore, now we had the Winterland. So it's like bigger than you know like a regular theater, but it's not quite arena size. And from how people have described it, they've said that it has the intimacy mm-hmm. like of a living room. You know that it, it felt smaller than it was and that probably i'm guessing had something to do with the fact that it was kind of right. a dump i mean it wasn't like this overly stuffy place uh you know they've talked about how like toward the end of winterland that like pieces of the ceiling like were literally falling <laughs> yeah. down like, during, during yeah. shows 
I like the neighborhood wasn't very nice, you know, like, it, but it was a place where you could go and, and really yeah. feel comfortable. Uh, I, I think a lot of that, it seems like it, ha- I think it the intimacy an too kind of came from what it was originally built for. Cause it was, uh, it was like an ice capades theater <laughs> that when it was built in the twenties. Uh, so it, it was meant to be like, it was sort of in the round. Like there were some cool pictures I found online that, you know, had this, you know, it was a big ice rink in the middle and then like rows of like bleachers of seats all around the ice rink. So when they converted it into a rock venue, it, 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 it's just like they plopped the stage down on one end of the ice rink, still had the bleachers on the side and there was a balcony up top, but it sounds like even though it held 5,000, uh, it, 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 you really felt like you were on top of the stage, no matter where you were sitting. And it really had this sort of communal vibe, you know, that people talk about the rock scene having in the 60s. You know, this idea of, like, you would go to this venue and sometimes Bill Graham actually served <laughs> yeah. food. You know, he served you a banquet of, of, of food. And obviously the most famous example of that is the Last Waltz hmm. concert that took place in 1976 on Thanksgiving. And, like, they served Thanksgiving uh, dinner to the audience at that show. And I feel like for me, like, that... And I guess the Grateful Dead movie are where I get my impressions of that theater from. Like, because they show a little bit of like the outside of Winterland at the beginning of the last waltz. And in the Grateful Dead movie, you see people like dancing in the audience and and that kind of stuff. So that gives you a taste of like what the vibe was like. But it really is one of those things like where, uh, you know, like you said, it opened in, in like, I think the mid 60s or so. Was it like 66? I think it opened. Uh, yeah, Bill Graham had it, and then closed in '78. And obviously, in the in the '60s, it was very much all the Bay Area bands that were big at the time. And then in '78, you know, like the Sex Pistols played their right. last show there. You know, like it kind of shows the arc of that venue as well as like the arc of of rock music. And it really was that thing, like where, like in the Bill Graham book, they talk about how like when Winterland closed, that was like the mm-hmm. end of an era. You know, and it, and you know, people were never as, you know, it was never that intimate ever again. It was not going to be a business <laughs> after Winterland closed. Which, you know, I, I, I tend to view that romanticism with a little bit of, right. of cynicism because it's, it was the late 70s. I feel like things, I feel like the bloom had gone off the rose and sort of the innocence of rock right. by then. But, you know, it does seem like the kind of venue that, would be hard to imagine existing today, like in the age of mm-hmm. one nation. Sure. You know? Like, yeah, like Bill that Graham kind of may have given birth to all of that, but uh, at the time, it, it now it looks, you know, very homespun in retrospect. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's like, it's funny how yeah. much, like the more you read about the Winterland, the more people talk about what a dump it was. <laughs> like, And it basically closed in 78 because Bill Graham didn't want to pay to like bring it up to code. And as you were saying, like, you know, pieces of it were falling on fans when Phil dropped an especially loud bass bomb and that sort of thing. So it's like, I think it's very easy to over romanticize it. I mean, I also think you mentioned The Last Waltz and, you know, that's without The Last Waltz, I feel like the Winterland would just be associated with the Grateful Dead. And so Deadheads would really love it. But The Last Waltz kind of lifted it up into rock history. 
Um, but I think right. it's important to note that they really like prettied up the place for the last waltz. <laughs> so if all if all you've ever seen right. is the last waltz, and you're imagining a place with like chandeliers and this beautiful red backdrop and candelabras and all this, uh, I guess it was like that for pretty much that night and that night only. <laughs> and the rest of the time, it was just like, you know, it was an old ice rink that was, you know falling apart 50 years after it had been built so even i feel like um you know the grateful dead movie it, it, you know it's pretty dark out in the audience but it does seem like you know it, it kind of has like a warehouse vibe <laughs> like it's not really it, other than the fact that right. everybody is very like close together to the point where like the state it's almost hard to see where the stage separates from the crowd to some extent um yeah it the building itself didn't really have a whole lot of magic, but you know, part of what's so cool about the winterland is that like it had a lot of regulars. I feel like, like a lot of the people that went to see the dead at winterland, they saw them, you know, dozens, twenties, thirties, forties, like a number of shows, uh, to the point where they had like, they had like local clubs that would go and sit in the same spot all the time. And they had like banners that would say like Marin County deadheads, I was reading about one show where Bill Graham had like some of the deadhead clubs that would always come to the Winterland shows. They played a volleyball tournament between sets. <laughs> so they somehow set up a volleyball net and they would pit really? like, you know, the the Los Angeles deadheads against the Marin County deadheads <laughs> and have them play against each other. Uh, and they had all these, you know, like regular signs. They had the like this many days since the san francisco dark star sign that people would put up all the time and it just it it, it feels like it was like the band's clubhouse and it was just like their the, all right. their family well, they, and friends were there and they knew everybody in the crowd and the crowd knew everybody else and they had their regular spots they always sat in and their routine for going to the shows and that's what sounds really nice about it to me is it's just like here's one consistent thing uh, in this very tumultuous world of the Grateful Dead in the seventies, right? I mean, and in, in that respect, it seems like the like the romanticism is is justified. Like where the Dead could maybe feel like a local band for maybe like one of the last times in their history. Certainly, by the eighties, it would be hard to say that. Like when they were playing stadiums and stuff, it'd be hard to say that they felt like a local band. But like, you know. They, I think they played Winterland like mm-hmm. 60 times over the course of a dozen years. And in 77, uh, in addition to this stand at the end of the year, they basically played another stand at the beginning of their tour cycle mm-hmm. in March. So it was like they, they started at Winterland and they ended the year at Winterland. It was like, okay, we're going to go out in the world. We're going to launch our tour you know, by warming up here. And then we're going to do sort of the, uh, you know, the hero's welcome at the end of the year, which is like a really kind of cool thing. You know, if you lived in that area that you could just drop in, it's like, oh, like, I'm going to see my favorite band. I'm going to play some volleyball <laughs> with my bros. And then, uh, you know, gonna do that. it's like, what other band has had right. that? I wonder. Like, I can't imagine another band that had, like, volleyball <laughs> tournaments breaking out during the intermission. Yeah. That is thoroughly unique. Well, I love that Bill Graham was, like, his um, reputation was as this, like, extremely stern like business first guy and yet there were always these weird hijinks at grateful dead shows i think it was like the grateful dead brought out the you know the prankster in him or something like that but there's like shows where he had like live horses (laughs) come out in the audience we're gonna talk about the like the new year's eve gags because they would 
typically always do New Year's Eve at Winterland. And uh, I, I'm pretty sure I read somewhere that like Bill Graham's, the highlight of Bill Graham's year was being involved in the New Year's Eve gag uh, at the Grateful Dead show. So uh, yeah, it was like a, he got into some like uh, some hijinks whenever the dead came around and every other band that came through, he just like yelled at them about <laughs> the, the bottom line pretty much. Right. Well, there's that story too about how like, uh, was Bill Graham his, he had a nickname called yeah. Uncle Bobbo. He hated it, and like Bob Weir, like it's like Bob Weir gave him that nickname because it was like Bill Graham or it was Bill Graham's birthday, and he's like, oh, "We have a uh, birthday present for Bill Graham, and we're gonna start calling him Uncle Bobbo." And it stuck, and he got like really pissed <laughs> off about it, like it like legitimately yeah. irritated him. Oh, wait, I think it's Uncle Bobo. I'm saying Uncle Bobo. Well, it could be Bobo or Bobo. <laughs> anyway, he hated the nickname. I think that's hilarious. But yeah, they did have that thing, and it does. It, it's kind of cool to see that side of the Grateful Dead because I feel like you don't really get a chance to, uh, to see that goofiness with this band sometimes. So mm-hmm. I, I like that. And I think that that feeling um, permeates this entire show. So that's. One of my favorite things about yeah, it exactly. is that you feel like well, yeah. you're in Winterland. And it from the very start with, you know, Bob's silly banter uh, all the way through the music, like it's, you you get a little right. uh, taste of what it was like to be there, which is cool. Well, that's something I was trying to keep in mind listening to this. And I think, you know, as much as like you and I, maybe other people get annoyed by the old heads who are like, you never even saw Jerry Garcia play live. Like, how can you have an opinion about the Grateful Dead? Like those kind of people i do think obviously there are certain things that uh you get from this band when you actually got to see them and and it maybe doesn't always translate when you're just listening to the tapes Mm -hmm. and i think this show in particular um you know i think the environment in the room would have been incredible i mean it would have been so fun to see the grateful dead during a New Year's Eve run at Winterland. I mean, they, they, I, I can't imagine a more fun environment <laughs> to hear them in. Yeah. And, you know, like I was saying earlier about how I felt like I was kind of, you know, giving them backhanded compliments about how consistent this show is and, like, how there's maybe not a ton of risks being taken. But I think it's worth remembering that, again, this was like a holiday time show where people, I think, first and foremost, wanted to have a party. Yeah. And in that context, it's like, oh, yeah. This is a really kind of fun time party show. Right. They nailed it. They nailed it. <laughs> so uh, this is, again, this is uh, for the end, of course, of their 77 tour. 77, of course, being a very historic period for the Grateful Dead. Uh, we talked about a show earlier, Dick's Picks 3. That's from May of 77. May of 77, of course, maybe being the most celebrated month in Grateful Dead history. Yeah. Uh, Cornell 77, of course, the most famous show from that month. But as we discussed in our Dick's Picks 3 episode, I feel like most shows from that month have been released yeah. um, uh, officially. So we, you know, we as fans have a very good idea of like what the dead were like that month. But as you were saying earlier, Rob, you know, it, it feels like the dead are different. Um, you know, even, you know, I guess what, like about six months later or so. Yeah. And this came, and of course, like this fall tour came after uh, Mickey Hart had a car accident, which prevented them from touring more in the summer. Mm -hmm. 
one of many one of many instances of Mickey Hart messing up the dead's momentum, <laughs> either on stage or on off. a larger scale uh, this so, time. Yeah, it's it's like one of the right. great uh, one of the great what ifs of Grateful Dead history is because they had a whole summer tour booked, uh, and then Mickey accidentally drove off a cliff and really got fucked up. It sounds like uh, I, I've never. Didn't quite realize until reading, you know, some more of these dead biographies recently how severely injured he was. Uh, and it's actually kind of amazing that he was back by September. You know, he was only, they were off the road for three months, essentially. Uh, came back with the big English Town show, uh, which we'll be covering in five episodes. Uh, so, and he's talked a lot about how he felt like he was barely holding it together for that show, but, uh, apparently he was, was good enough that they could do a, a full fall winter tour. And yeah, I think, you know, that we talked a lot in the volume three episode about what made May so special. And I think kind of the sort of least mystical answer to that is that they had just practiced a lot to record terrapin station and the drummers were tighter than ever and the band was tighter than ever and so it kind of makes sense that if they were forced to take three months off that they would lose that edge that they had for may from just like practicing a lot <laughs> so uh it's natural can, can that I just, like, fall 77 as uh, feels has a whole different flavor to it i think i just wanted to like ask quick why didn't they just tour without mickey I mean, they just wow. play, you yeah. know, had a bunch of years where they where they were one drummer band. Why didn't they just play those shows just with Bill? I mean, like, was it we don't want to disrespect? I mean, no. I, look, I I made a joke at Mickey's expense earlier. I I actually like Mickey's the only one I've ever interviewed in the dead, mm-hmm. so he's got that advantage for me in terms of you know place in my heart. But I mean, it seems like they were more than capable of playing without Mickey. Yeah. I know it's uh, yeah that's sort of uh, the 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 sub question to the great what if of what would a summer dead tour in '77 have been like? Because yeah, I mean if you could imagine May '77 dead, but then strip back down to like the one drummer attack of like '73 '74 oh, dead, it's it's a dream, right? Uh, they never would have let him back. They never would have let Mickey back. That's the thing. No, yeah, like, I feel like uh, and. It, and that changes the entire course of Grateful Dead history. Uh, so oh, man. in some alternate universe where a pandemic hasn't shut us down, there's an amazing Grateful Dead uh, where Jerry is skinny and still alive. And <laughs> they've, they've continued on with one drummer and uh, I don't know, all the keyboardists are there too and everybody's happy. <laughs> but um, but yeah, it's uh, it's it's a bummer, but like, you know, it's a, I, I, that's, you know why I find this show and this period of time in the dead really fascinating because I think that was an unplanned uh, detour to what they were working towards and yeah you can hear as I said earlier a lot of you know what the dead turned in later uh, starting in this era I think starting in these months but still sounding really powerful at this time mm-hmm. and also um continuing to work in like new songs that work really well. I mean, you know, we you alluded to Terrapin Station, that album and, you know, the title track shows up in this show and, and we'll talk about it. Obviously Scarlet Fire was like a new set piece that they were introducing and it's not in this show, but they they played that twice um, during this run at Winterland mm-hmm. and it seemed like that was the new uh, set piece for them, uh, 
more so than China Rider, although China Rider, uh, as we'll talk about, makes a very welcome bust out in this show. And uh, I kind of feel like, you know, we'll, we'll get into this when we talk about the set, but like, I, I wonder if this show was picked in part because of the China Rider. Yeah. Because it was because it was busted out. I'm guessing there was a lot of excitement, and I just wonder if that added to the reputation of this show and like why people remembered it. Absolutely. Out of this run. Yeah, that's like the historical uh, footnote to this show, is that it's the ret- the triumphant return of China Rider, and that's one thing that sets it apart uh, from the rest of this run, which we, sh- we should mention that, you know, the the dead typically played a New Year's Eve show and very often played it at Winterland, but uh, this is the first time that they did a whole run of shows leading up to New Year's Eve, which is yet another of these like things we just take for granted uh, from jam bands today that the dead invented, you know, several decades ago. Uh, they played the 27th, took a night off, and then played the 29th, 30th, and 31st. So a nice, tidy little four-show New Year's Eve run like you get from a lot of bands today. Uh, yeah, yeah, I was going to say, I, I remember like on, our, on Dick's Picks 1, we were talking about how they played that show in Florida. I think it was December 19, mm-hmm. 73, and then just took the rest of the year off. Right. Like they didn't, I don't think they played a New Year's Eve. Or no, they did. Wasn't that the Almond Brothers show? Yeah, that was the one that, that Jerry just sat in on the Almonds, yeah. All right, yeah, there was an Almond Brothers show, so the Dead didn't play their own show, like Jerry, and uh, I think Bill was was at that show too. Yeah, that sounds right. Um, but yeah, because we were because because Jerry wanted to watch The Exorcist. <laughs> that's why they didn't, that's why they didn't do the New Year's Eve run. And Don, think, Donna I, was having a baby was, too, so that was another thing. Yeah. Oh, uh, okay. <laughs> Donna having a baby second. Jerry wanted to see The Exorcist first. first. Okay, well, before we get to the show, let's set up the scene like we like to do, talking about like what else was happening in pop culture uh, at the time of this gig in 77. Number one song in the country, How Deep Is Your Love by the Bee Gees mm-hmm. from the Saturday Night Fever soundtrack. Number one song for three weeks going into 1978. Of course, the Bee Gees had a huge 78. Now, I've read this in a couple of places. I couldn't find it really verified, but apparently like Mickey Hart really liked the Bee Gees disco era hits. Yeah, there was some story now, I, right about Donna. Do, I think Donna was saying that every time you walked by his dressing room, he was listening to the Saturday Night Fever soundtrack. And I think we wondered. Oh man, we wondered in that first that uh, volume three episode whether it was Bill or Mickey that brought the disco edge to the the Grateful Dead in '77. And it sounds like it was absolutely Mickey, which we should have known the whole right. time from it from that stash. <laughs> The mustache he had just screams like I'm 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 hitting up the disco as soon as this show is over. So, yeah, I think uh, it feels we have like ample confirmation now that he was the uh, 
the disco guy. Oh man, I I'd love to see Jerry's face walking by Mickey's <laughs> dressing room. And like by the way, I'm I love that album. I love that movie. I I'm a fan of the Bee Gees like throughout their history. Mm-hmm. So like I'm not knocking that stuff. But I'm just imagining Jerry's reaction. <laughs> he might have been into it. I don't know. Well, he might have liked I it. I mean, like the whole Mutron thing is sort of disco-y too, I feel like. Or, you know, it's it's right. coming from the disco funk world. So yeah, you know, Jerry Jerry was game. I think he was I think he was down for it. And, you know, if he wasn't, they they wouldn't have done as much as they did. So yeah, he had to at least give it's his it, tacit approval. It's interesting though, because like that seventy seven that that Dick's Picks three show from seventy seven, I feel like is decidedly more disco than the show. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. I feel like they've kind of like, like burned di- it off a little bit during the break, and there's a few songs coming up that we'll mention that I think are like it's like they they turned down the disco knob fifty percent <laughs> from the last time we heard is, them. Is it is that just because like Mickey was still injured? Like, the, <laughs> like he got the disco beat out of him by the car accident. Yeah, he couldn't do the four on the floor anymore. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> I think maybe they just kind of decided that it was, it had run its course. <laughs> like, I mean, they're yeah. they're still doing it. Like, you know, they haven't even started Shakedown Street yet, which is you know by right. far the most discoy dead song. Uh, they were like discofying like Jack Straw. Right, exactly. Like, All the cowboy like, songs like getting 70. discoed up has kind of gone out the window. Um, I don't know. Right. I mean, it's. It, the the charts are really interesting for this week because i feel like it 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 seems like this is the point where disco had fully now crossed over to being the pop sound in america and right. you know up to that disco of course started you know several years or a few years before that uh so it was kind of this cool hip thing that you know maybe not everybody knew about and you could see how it would be this fresh new sound that would appeal to people like Mickey Hart. <laughs> but uh, now that it, right. now that the Bee Gees are doing, you know, How Deep Is Your Love is a it's it's a really good song. But there's also some kind of like schlocky disco, like the Star Wars theme <laughs> is on the charts oh, yeah. at this point. And you know, once you're getting but, into but, these like novelty disco hits, that's kind of where its cool curve is starting to bend towards being corny. But uh, Best of My Love by The Emotions was another big... That's a disco-y song. That's actually the song that plays first in Boogie Nights. Yeah, that's a great song. I like, like that uh, one. When they show the marquee. That was, uh, that was still on the charts. That was actually number one the week I was born. I was born in September uh, of 77. Yeah. So I was, I, was, uh, I was a wee baby when the dead were playing this show. <laughs> um, so the number one album in the country was Simple Dreams by Linda Ronstadt, number one for five weeks. She also had a couple songs in the top ten, uh, her covers of Blue Bayou and It's So Easy. Mm-hmm. Um, and I will say I am a Linda Ronstadt fan. I like that record specifically. And I think it has my favorite version of this Warren Zevon song called Carmelita, yeah. which is on his first record. And uh, her cover of it, she did like a lot of Warren Zevon songs and like she really helped popularize him mm-hmm. uh, in the mainstream. Um, her cover of that, that's my favorite Warren Zevon song that she does. Um, did you see the Linda Ronstadt documentary, by the way? Yeah, so I watched year? it for homework for recording this episode because like she's always... Oh, wow. She's been somebody that she's very much like a my parents record collection person uh, where they had all these Linda Ronstadt records and I thought they were... 
just very uncool. <laughs> and so she's always been a blind spot, except for the fact, you know, that she did all this stuff with Neil Young. And that kind of right. kind of won me over where I'm like, hey, was Linda Ronstadt actually cool? And like from doesn't from she sing on Heart of Gold? She does. Her and James Taylor like, are doing the backing vocals on Heart of Gold. Uh, and then and she's like a fantastic singer. Like whatever. Like even if people listening, if you're not a, a fan of her records, mm-hmm. her voice I think is unimpeachable. Yeah. So I've come around on her. You know, it's it's also the old like rockist prejudice against. Oh, she never wrote her songs. All she did was do cover songs. So that that took me a lot of years to get over her as well. Uh, but I'd been listening to her records like more recently, and so I watched the documentary that came out last year. And yeah, it was great. I mean, it makes just a really good case for. Her you know, what an important, uh, you know, not just musician, but female musician, uh, she was in the seventies. Uh, and it's like, like, you know, the fact that she sort of was the matchmaker behind the Eagles is, you know, you can maybe curse her for that, but you can't (laughs) deny that that had a big impact on, um, rock and roll history. And yeah, her support of a lot of other singer songwriters who you never would have heard of if she hadn't you know, pick their songs and turn them into hit records. It's, it's, it's really impressive. And yeah, as you say, her, her voice is incredible. Yeah. I was going to say like that thing about not writing her songs. I mean, she did have great taste in songwriters and and she helped like a lot of people's careers because she was such a huge star, you know, like she's doing like Elvis Costello songs. I kind of like the kind of songs you wouldn't expect a pop star of her stature to be doing. Mm -hmm. Uh, so yeah, hats off to Linda. Well, and also like uh, the number one people f- that now you're like, oh, she was doing Elvis Costello songs. Of course, that makes perfect sense. But like at the time, did anybody know who Elvis Costello was in America? Like, no. she was she was picking these people out of the uh, the obscure bins and and giving them a boost. So, and I, I also want to correct something that we said on the Volume Three episode where we said that Sunrise Donna's showcase song was her trying to be Fleetwood Mac. Uh, now I'm pretty sure it was her trying to be Linda Ronstadt instead. <laughs> it sounds like like a big showstopper Linda Ronstadt like 70s song. So I think that you know you can hear. I don't I don't think she ever performed with the Dead, but I I I definitely feel like adding Donna to the Dead was going for a a, a similar sort of sound. Would you say? Right. Yeah, I could see that. I could see Donna digging Linda. Linda, I mean Linda's career it went back to the 60s, so she'd been around for yeah quite a long time um the number one movie in the country as you might have guessed saturday night fever that came out i think like earlier in december mm-hmm. and was it was an enormous movie another movie that was still big around this time was close encounters of the third kind mm-hmm. which came out in november and like that will be an important part of this show yeah like there's an allusion to that movie in this show and we'll i guess we'll just save it for when we get to that point uh, also want to shout out the John Cassavetes movie Opening Night, which opened on Christmas Day. I think that's my favorite John Cassavetes movie with the Jenna Rollins and uh, Cassavetes is in it. Peter Falk, I guess like all the usuals, but uh, <laughs> his, his ensemble, yeah. But uh, great movie. This is our uh, uh, our regular Thirty Six from the Vault segment where you shame me for not having seen some <laughs> some great. The '70s film. I've never seen a single Cassavetes film. I have to admit. So. Oh man. I uh, I I, I came it, late to my film geekdom, so I'm still playing catch up. And uh, yeah, just I've it not might be to him on. Yet. It might be on the Criterion Channel. I know, like 
all of his, like his big seventies movies are on Blu-ray. Like I have the box set, but for any other Cassavetes noobs out there, Opening Night and Killing of a Chinese Bookie would be the two movies I'd recommend to uh, get into the Cassavetes world. Um, and yeah, and I, you know, and if you like uh, the Safdie brothers. They're just like pilfering John Cassavetes left. Oh, okay. So uh, definitely of that vibe. Uh, number one uh, TV show of this time, of, at this time, Laverne and Shirley. <laughs> Not a surprise. All, all these Gary Marshall comedies yeah. were huge. Laverne and Shirley, Happy Days uh, was number two. Then Three's Company, then you have 60 Minutes, Charlie's Angels, and of course, all of them. <laughs> the ubiquitous. Matt. I'm surprised like Mash isn't up there. I Mash must be like right after this. Yeah, was it on the air yet by '77? Yeah, they, that was on until like the early '80s. Yeah. Like that show lasted literally like five or six times longer than the Korean War. You know, like the Korean War was like two years, and Mash <laughs> was on for eleven years. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, it just couldn't. People just couldn't get enough. It couldn't top the Marshall verse at this point, as I think we brought up no, before. Mar- the yeah. Harry Marshall verse was the uh, Marvel Cinematic Universe of its time, and uh, oh yeah, yeah. You, just, you couldn't top and, it. And he, he was about to get Mark and Mindy too. <laughs> exactly, that was another one. <laughs> His most uh... couldn't stop Marshall. <laughs> yeah. Man, Marshall's unstoppable. All right, well, we're finally getting to the show. Right. <laughs> here we go. So dig in. Uh, it's Thursday night so at Winterland. dig in here. Thursday night at Winterland. And I, I feel like we, you know, we've alluded to it, but we haven't fully uh, you know, basked in the Bob Ware banter intro here, which is you know, it's the rare like Grateful Dead stage banner is so good that there's actually a dead cover band named for it. <laughs> Like oh, there is like a perfectly, the exi- the, there is a just exactly perfect Brothers Band. There is, yeah. So, you, you can look it up. Good evening and welcome to Thursday Night at Winterland. We'll be right with you as soon as we make some last minute adjustments. We're going to try to get everything just exactly perfect. On account of our new name is going to be the Just Exactly Perfect Brothers Band. So, my question about that is, I remember in Cornell 77, Bob has another joke about how they're trying to get everything exactly perfect. Yeah, I I think it's something Uh, you would say a lot, yeah. Was that something, was that just like a 77 thing, or was it after? Uh, Because I'm just wondering, like, did someone from Rolling Stone, like, write, like, a snarky concert review of the dead <laughs> saying that they were sloppy and then bob read it and was like oh fuck that guy and then he just like made jokes about it all the time <laughs> i mean because because i feel like that i, I don't know because I, I, I don't recall hearing that outside of 77 but maybe he did that a lot yeah i think bob kind of latches on to particular pieces of banter and repeats them a lot and i think that one got a good run i've I I feel like I've heard it outside of '77. Somebody somebody uh, out there must have the definitive guide to Bob Ware stage banner that could tell us exactly the yeah. range that the just exactly perfect thing uh, lasted. But yeah, I I think that's that was a pretty 
standard comment for him. And, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if it was, uh, you know, in response to a review at some point that stuck in his craw. But, you know, you got to say, right. like, it, it wasn't exactly a, a cheap shot. Like, <laughs> the dead no took a lot of time getting things uh, mostly perfect. Yeah, I thought that was, like, I mean, I, I think it's actually, like, really good banter. It's kind of like a good self-aware joke um just about like how they you know from like a stagecraft standpoint they could be pretty inept sometimes yeah. that was part of their appeal like you wouldn't want them to be perfect that's the whole point of going to a dead show so for him to say that i always thought oh, that's actually pretty good bob <laughs> it needs to be like it needs to be like a you know like that bob pollard album or relaxation <laughs> of the asshole where it's just banter or having fun on stage like a bob where yeah yeah, right, right. But it should just be Bob making that joke over and over again. <laughs> well, just like call it the just exactly perfect Bob Weir banter record. At least a, and it's him saying the same. A thing. seven inch of that with uh, take a step back. That would be a good oh, like, yeah, oh, uh, exactly. record store day limited oh, release. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. The take a step back. Yeah. Like this was golden age of Bob Weir. <laughs> like the take a step back. This exactly perfect brothers band. Just killing it. Um, first song of uh, the set, of course, is Jack Straw. And I was saying this earlier that, like, for me, what distinguishes this show, I think even more than Six Picks 3, the other 77 show that we've covered so far, is that this feels like a big rock show to me. And it has, like, big rock energy and not the same energy that you'd get from, like, I'd say, a 1970 show, like, where they were playing hard and loud but also kind of abrasive and experimental and out there this show is never really out there but it has a muscularity to it if, is that a word muscularity yeah i think so we'll say it is. musculature um <laughs> i know like uh, there's the book that we often cite this is a dream we all dreamed uh they mentioned this show specifically there's a writer michael nash who actually wrote the liner notes for this uh for this album, The Dix Picks 10. And he talks about Jack Straw being a sign early on that this was going to be an especially brawny show. Mm-hmm. Like, he used the term brawny to describe the dead. Which, by the way, like, just a quick side note about Michael Nash, because I was reading about him. Apparently, he's been working on a musical with Bob Weir about Satchel Page for, like, 25 years. Wow. Are you aware of this? I like the sound of that. Would this be a rock opera, technically? <laughs> I don't know, like, because cause I just looked him up. I I Google him, and like, there was an interview that Weir did in '95, like shortly after Jerry died, mm-hmm. where he alluded to this musical that he was working on. I don't know when he started it, <laughs> but he was working on it. It kind of made it sound like it was going to come out. And then the next reference I saw to it was an interview from 2017, and it said the Satchel Page musical is coming. And unless I blanked out, I don't remember hearing about a Satchel Page musical that's been released already. <laughs> so apparently this is still being workshopped. <laughs> I don't know if my, and I don't know if Nash is still working on it with him, but anyway, we're digressing from the show here again, but like I just thought I had to mention that. I'm just amazed that uh, at the that Bob would go for that subject matter instead of just I like know. a cowboy <laughs> musical. Like what was the musical that uh, Roger McGuinn tried to write that uh 
like that song chestnut mare is from one of the most hilarious oh. bird songs <laughs> slash rock songs nah. of all time but it, you could totally oh, yeah, imagine like, bob making like uh i imagine like a it's like a broadway stage musical adaptation of once upon a time in the west with songs by bob right Ware, like starring bob yeah. Ware or like the- all the as all the cool characters <laughs> or like Davy Crockett, like the story of Davy Crockett or something. I could see that, yeah. but like sad, but Satchel Paige, you know, who of course was, you know, a baseball pitcher yeah. who lived like, wasn't he playing, but I think he was like playing in his sixties or something. Like, I think, well, he was like a, really old. He was a big Negro leagues, was, uh, pitcher. Right. And then, you know, crossed over post Jackie Robinson for a bit. Yeah. So anyway, okay. Well, we should do a separate podcast just on the Bob Weir Satchel Page musical. Okay. But like, yeah. so I don't like, what do you think about, you know, like I was talking about sort of like the big rock well, deal of Jack Straw being a harbinger of this show. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I kind of agree and I kind of don't like I do. It's, it's hard for me to square that you see this as a big rock show with me thinking, feeling like this is a really laid back, like homey sort of clubhouse show. But I think the, the reason why we're both right <laughs> is because the thing that jumps out to me is Jerry's tone in this show is very aggressive. So that's where all the like brawniness and aggressive like adjectives are coming from. I feel like is that Jerry's got this really like supercharged guitar tone. And I know he was back on his wolf guitar for this run. Uh, I'm not the kind of person that really like keeps track of what guitar Jerry's playing from era to era. I know there are a lot of deadheads who do and like, God bless you for keeping track of that. And, but I've never been totally conversant in like what the different guitars sound like and what the meaning is. But I do know he was playing Wolf for this run because I saw it somewhere and researching this show. And it it made me wonder if like he did do some tweaks to his sound because it sounds and I don't remember it sounding like this in May as much, uh, but it, it, it definitely is a much more sort of overdriven, in-your-face tone that he uses a lot in this show. Right. And it's also something I really associate with, like, Jerry for the rest of this decade, like 78 and 79 Jerry, also kind of has this very, sort not quite harsh, because he's still playing like Jerry Garcia. It's almost It, it, it sounded almost like a Neil Young sort of country rock tone to me but jerry is such a different player from neil young that it sounds totally different in his hands but i i hear it all throughout this show and especially right here right away on the jack straw where it's just like when when he takes his solo it's like this is this is not fluttery lyrical jerry or it is but it's you know through this new pedal setup or new guitar that he's using uh right now
Yeah, I mean, I think talking about like laid back versus aggressive. I, I will say, like, I I see what you mean about laid back. I think when I t- when I think about the dead, you know, being uh, not laid back, I guess. I, I associate that with them being more exploratory and maybe them being more potentially uh, alienating, mm-hmm. you know, which I think they, they had certainly in the late 60s. And, and they even have at points in the 80s, at least during like space type things, you know, yeah. like where they, they would go into that, like get really weird, which there are no real weird points in this show. Like, that was a little bit. So I think in that way, well, I don't know. I mean, it's it's still like pretty straightforward. Yeah. I think for a dead show. I mean, not I compared like, to even the '90s show we listened to. This show's a lot safer yeah, than right. the '90s show. <laughs> I mean, I, 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 I'm curious to hear what you think is is weird in this show because, like, to me, I, I felt like fairly straightforward. I guess like the plane in the band part would be uh, where they go the farthest out. But um, anyway, you know, I, I again, I feel like this is them being more of like a straightforward rock band yeah. in this show. And again, I think in accordance with what was going on when they played the show, this was like, you know, we're not trying to like turn anyone off. We're not trying to take, a, take too many risks here because people are celebrating the end of the year. We're like, you know, we're going to have a good time. Uh, so that seems to be the vibe that this song is setting for me, like right at the beginning. Mm-hmm. Um, it's interesting because we go into, they love each other right after this. And, my sense is that they did this combination a lot and they would often start shows with this combination. Mm-hmm. And I think we're going to see that at various points in this show, like where there's like two or three song combinations that um, are often played together. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and I think that speaks to like in 77, how... What is a city without its music? The legacy of the New York Philharmonic is incredible. Nearly two centuries of history. That's a lot of music and a lot of stories. I was sitting on stage for the very first time thinking, I can't quite believe this is happening. Join me, Jamie Bernstein, as we explore the history of the New York Philharmonic. It's the NY Phil story made in New York, a podcast about a city, its people, and their orchestra. Listen wherever you get podcasts. I don't feel like their set list changed all that much. I think they had a fairly small pool of songs that they were pulling from, and they they stuck with them. Like like this set, for instance, reminds me a lot of Cornell seventy seven. Mm-hmm. There's like songs that there's a lot of songs that get shared there. Um, although I'm not complaining, I love they love each other. Um, I think it's a good way to kind of ease into this show. Did you detect like a like a reggae-type <laughs> vibe to the rhythm here? I was getting kind of like a reggae vibe yeah. from this a little bit. There's some like interesting rhythm section things happening in this first set. Like there's some really cool things they do. There's one song in particular that I think that they kind of destroy mm-hmm. that we'll get to later. But like, I don't know. Did, am I crazy? Or I, I was kind of getting like a little bit of a reggae thing well, I, from this version. I think we're entering the era of the dead that they were always just like, on the border of like going reggae (laughs) like there's a lot of songs (laughs) that sort of get that vibe and i wonder if it's just like a byproduct of them slowing down and also just sort of like the two drummer aesthetic sort of draws them in that direction where songs like they love each other that used to have more of a chuggly uh groovy feel to it like are now once you 
once you slow them down and make them a little more ballady, like they they start to teeter over into that territory. So yeah, I see what you mean. In in general, I actually, as a famous hater of Two Drummer Dead, didn't really mind them on this show. Like I thought it was pretty good. It definitely, as I said earlier, is not as tight as the May Two Drummer Dead, which is basically the peak uh, form of, of Bill and Mickey playing together. Uh, but uh, you know, I think they generally do some pretty interesting things in this show and yeah, I just, I, I, yeah. There's only one song that I think they sound awful. (laughs) We're going to get to it here shortly. Uh, but yeah, they actually do some pretty cool things like where they're, um, laying back a little bit on the best parts of, of this show, I think. Mm -hmm. Uh, pulling back and getting quiet in a way that, like, I feel like they weren't doing a whole lot of in this era, but like they they seem to be doing that on on this run in a, in a cool way. Yeah. One thing I love about this version of "They Love Each Other" is what uh, Keith is doing. Yeah. Uh, there's some, and I really appreciate like how well you can hear Keith on this show. He's still not as loud as he should be. I don't <laughs> he never think. is. Yeah. Like, <laughs> he never is. But like, you know, we've talked about this before that there's, you know, there, there are shows like where he's barely audible yeah. in the mix. And, and here, like he, I, there's a bunch of songs like where Keith is doing some really cool things and you can actually hear the piano really well. I, but I don't think it's this song, but, there's one song that he's playing a really beautiful solo on and like the guitars are as loud as he are louder than him, mm-hmm. even though they're just playing a rhythm part basically. Yeah. And, uh, it's like, it's really weird cause he's such a beautiful player. And I'm like, I don't know why they didn't want to turn him up a little bit more, but, but it is nice in the show that you can hear him more than usual. Yeah. And everything with the dead, with the Keith era of the dead post May, I start to worry that you're going to catch a show. One of these shows where Keith was just kind of checked out and not really contributing right. much. And so I was bracing myself for that with this show, but no, he's delightful. I think all throughout this show. Oh yeah. And I think, uh, it, yeah, this might be the, that example you're talking about where he's a little too quiet. Uh, because I, later on in the show, I felt like they, they cranked him up in the mix and he sounds pretty good. Uh, but yeah. yeah, he has a really great solo here. He just he's doing his Keith thing throughout, man, where he's just very tastefully adding a little bit here and there that unless you're focused on him, you may not even notice it. But when you do focus on him, you really hear what a special player he was in this like crazy mix of a band. So up next comes Mama Tried. I don't have a whole lot to say about Mama Tried. <laughs> yeah. It's fine. <laughs> it's a little, you know. We were talking about how they were discoing up cowboy songs earlier in the year. You hear that a little bit here, not as egregiously, I think, in in May. Yeah, um, I feel like they start but, uh, uh, they started up at the start of the song, and then it kind of fades out pretty fast. I don't know if Bob shot him a dirty look or what, but it sort of it, it it comes and goes quickly. And yeah, the the disco cowboy era has has come to an end, at least for now. I will say that like. You know, because we took our break, um, I enjoyed this more than I probably would have otherwise. Like, it, if we were uh, several episodes into uh, <laughs> our season, uh, you know, I, I feel like I wouldn't have enjoyed this Mama Tried. But I'm like, I'll sit through Mama Tried. You know, I haven't, I haven't listened to Dick's Picks in a minute. 
So I dug it for that reason. Yeah, and also after um, you know getting the Bobby Blues slot third, I'll take a Bobby Cowboy slot over that anytime. <laughs> oh yeah, that's true. Absolutely, that's right because we are coming off a nine. Exactly, and uh, there was definitely some Bobby Bobby Blues in that. Still one. a little scarred uh, from that um, one. That definitely drove us into the hiatus <laughs> a little quicker than maybe would yeah. otherwise. <laughs> oh yeah, that was not a triumphant. And to our first uh, tour, that was that was that was the well, uh, you know, nine volume nine is one thing, but the little red rooster on volume nine that that was a signal to me that I could take a break from the dead for a little bit. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So up next comes loser, uh, a Dix Picks debut, like what? Amazing, yeah. The first of many debuts, uh, which is crazy. I mean, I feel like man, such a great song. I feel like we're gonna be hit with like with a couple losers though in the upcoming episodes. I mean, we're, we're, we've got like a '72 show coming up, a bunch of early '70s shows. I feel like that's prime time loser territory right there. Um, yeah, it really picks up in this the song, uh, the '20s and '30s, oddly enough. So maybe maybe Dick wasn't a loser fan because it it starts to pop up more frequently when David Lemieux takes over the series. But yeah, I can't believe the loser didn't appear until volume 10 because it seems like you could grab you know at random nine shows from any era of the dead and you would almost certainly get two or three losers so i'm I'm happy it's here it's one of my favorite grateful dead songs and i'm i was oh it's great sad to miss out on it. great robert hunter oh amazing robert hunter great robert hunter like i love to laugh at robert hunter's very tortured gambling metaphors in in almost every song but Loser is one where he just kind of takes that gambling metaphor and runs with it for the entire <laughs> entirety of the lyric, and it, it it's great. I mean, it's got man, I don't. Is it the best opening line in the Grateful Dead catalog? I'm gonna have to sit down and really, really think about this. But that the opening line of Loser is just like that is a great rock line right there. So good. Yeah, I mean, there's so many great Robert Hunter opening lines. I mean, that would be a great list to make, try to settle that down. I feel like he was a master of that. But all the lines in his songs are good, too. So, you know, he definitely wasn't restricting it to just the opening line. Mm-hmm. Um, Loser, I feel like, was really good in 77, too. Like, one of my favorite versions, and maybe this is basic to say because it's such a famous <laughs> show, but I love the Cornell 77 version. Right. Um, and I feel like this song is always like an underrated Jerry guitar solo showcase. Yeah, I think like I always love the loser guitar solo. I think it's pretty well rated among deadheads. Like I feel like loser is well regarded as a Jerry showcase, but it's it's maybe one that you forget about because it it it's not a dead song that has it's not really a jam vehicle. Yeah, it's not a dead song that has big out there improvisation. It's it's a little like sugary in that regards, where it's it's more about yeah, the solo and how the band plays off the solo. And yeah, I, I mean, I, I thought this was a pretty good version, though. I think this might be the one that you uh, take issue with the, the drummers. Yeah, I feel like the drummers ruin this uh, version. Uh, for one thing, I feel like they play it too fast. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and I would I would say go back to the Cornell 77 version. Um, and I feel like it's weird to say that about a that the dead are playing too fast. I feel like that's a pretty rare complaint to make about the dead, you know, especially as we get into the eighties. Um, but 
they play it too fast. And then during Jerry's guitar solo, I'm guessing this is Mickey. There's a bunch of like drum fills that don't need to be there. <laughs> and it's distracting from the solo. And it was like really irritating. Yeah. To listen to it. So yeah, I just feel like the drums, like, like the pacing of this is off to me. It sounds like a mess. And like the rest of the band sounds good. Jerry sounds good. I like his solo, but again, it is the drums are totally distracting for me during the solo. So, um, great song that I feel like is hamstrung uh, at this show. did it a little bit which is the complaint you can lodge against a lot of uh two drummer dead uh but yeah i mean i'm just maybe i was just happy to have it <laughs> and so i was willing to overlook <laughs> its flaws uh on its debut voyage here in the dick's pick series yeah i'm glad it's here i'm glad that they finally got it in here because there are other songs that are in this show that we've heard a million times it feels like already <laughs> that are well we're going to hit that soon. So that. <laughs> yeah. Um, actually, actually, this next song I feel like has been in a lot of shows so far. True. Yeah. Which is Looks Like Rain. Uh, Dick must have loved Looks Like Rain. Um, <laughs> or Hated Rain. It, or Hated Rain. <laughs> well, it's funny because, uh, you know, we were talking about Dick's Picks 9 before and Looks Like Rain was in that show. And, you know, that was a show from ninety. And it, I, I think it's very telling to compare that version or any version really from like the 80s and, or 90s to this, you know, and we, we had a lot of fun with how bombastic Weir is, you know, when he's singing this by himself. And I feel like when you compare that to when he sings this song with Donna, it really shows that this song needs Donna, mm-hmm. in my opinion. Yeah. And... There really is this thing at the end of the song where it's almost like a three, it's like three voices together where it's Bob, Donna, and it's Jerry's guitar all together. And there's something about Donna's presence that pulls Bob back and it makes the song much more tender. Yeah. And which seems more appropriate, which, you know, again, like I like 
Bob going crazy. Like there is a campy appeal to that in a lot of ways. Um, but I just feel it's so much more graceful when Donna is there. And I end up liking the song a lot more when she's on the, like when they perform it with her. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Donna is, uh, she's really good on this show. We talked about her in volume three too, being really good. And 77 is a great Donna year because she could finally hear herself. So that really brings out what a great talent she was uh, and that she can add a lot to these songs. So, yeah, I totally agree. This is like, I mean, this also kind of makes sense with the, the Linda Ronstadt angle we were talking about earlier where, uh, you know, this is right in what would be her wheelhouse as well, like this sort of smooth California folk rock. Uh, and when you have it as this very nice duet uh, between Bob and Donna. It, it comes off a lot better than maybe later on when it's it's a Bob solo feature. I mean, I really like that 1990 version too. Um, and, you know, for a lot of reasons, the hiatus really helped us because otherwise we'd be jumping straight from 1990 into 77. But it in this case, it was fun to kind of compare how the song developed uh, in reverse, I guess, because... It didn't have that like really great Jerry lick that I liked in the 1990 version from Volume Nine, uh, but you could almost hear him sort of like dancing around it, like it was almost there uh, in the climax of the song, and I appreciated that. You could hear sort of the continuity of how this song developed. I was wondering too, like if Bob going into the falsetto when he sings it by himself, which he would often do, you know, like, right, you know, he does that like really wonky falsetto. Is that him just like consciously or not like channeling Donna, like trying to get like a, like the feminine flavor yeah. back into the song that's now gone, you know? Cause it's like, I feel like again, like not having the feminine presence at the end with Bob, it just creates a hole in the song. And I feel like Bob, it's like Bob's trying to be both, Bob and Donna. Yeah. Like after Donna leaves and it, it, it just blows up in such a big way. Well, I think uh, Brent's probably like provided some of that too. I mean, there's, I'm, I'm sure there's Brent versions of looks like rain where he's, he's taken the high harmony, the Donna part. Uh, but yeah, I, I've, I also think Brent's might've uh, pushed Bob, uh, in in some hammy directions so <laughs> maybe yeah over the course of the 80s it got worse and worse and then when he didn't have brent anymore it was just like you were he was off the scales for yeah i was gonna say like when, when you've got bob and donna it's like wine and cheese yeah. it's very elegant yeah and when you get bob and brent it's just tons of cheese <laughs> we're just loaded up on the it's either tons, tons of cheese of dairy, or tons man. of wine i don't know which one is better <laughs> <laughs> wine and wine <laughs> They get drunk on the wine and they gorge on cheese, <laughs> yeah. man. It's, just like, it's, it's just a little too much, bed. yeah. Uh, but it's it's sometimes in a great way too, you know. Like the excess is sometimes a beautiful thing. Yeah. So I, I'm not totally getting. I, I love the excess too sometimes. But <laughs> love Donna on that song. All right, next song, Tennessee Jed. For like again, how many? How, <laughs> How many Tennessee Jets, man? And like, look, we kind of made peace with Tennessee Jed and the Dix Picks Nine. That was like the heartwarming conclusion of that season, like us reconciling with Tennessee Jed. Yeah. But to get thrown back into Jed, and, and spoiler alert, there's another Jed <laughs> in 11, too. Yeah. 
And we just talked about how, you know, there hasn't been a loser yet. And there's some other wonderful songs in this show that have not been in a Dick's Picks, uh, you know, for, through the first nine volumes. I know people out there love Jed, but like, do you want this much Jed? Does anyone out there want this much Jed? Uh, I don't know. Yeah, it's been in. It's so much. This is four out of the last five volumes, and as you say, it's in the next <sighs> one, so it's five out of six. Uh, five out of six. And I remember that's too much when I tried to listen to like the Europe seventy two box when they put out all the shows. Part of the reason why I couldn't get through <laughs> listening to every last Europe seventy two show was that Tennessee Jed was just constantly there. Um, yeah, it's a lot. Maybe that that maybe w- would have been a better cut than. Uh, it must have been the roses or sunrise. Like I understand, I mean, maybe the double berries are kind of hard to cut around because they tend to end sets or be the encore, I don't know. right? But yeah, maybe we could have I mean, gone without one Tennessee Jed during this run, right? I mean, I'm pretty sure. I mean, you could maybe get both of those songs back in if you cut Jed. <laughs> Jed's like Jed's like nine minutes. Yeah, it's pretty long. It's and like I mean, you know. They play this one a little bit faster too. Like the pacing on this is also a little faster, just like it is on Loser, mm. which in a way helps Jed because Jed is so slow. Yeah. Um, but I don't know. I I feel like what made me like Jed in Dick's Picks Nine was Bruce Hornsby and his prominent role and like how him and Jerry play off each other in that song, um, which added an element of tension that the song otherwise doesn't really have yeah. for me. Um, it just is, again, it, it's an easygoing song. Um, so, it, you know, I don't feel good hating on it, but <laughs> at the same time, four out of five, it's just too much. Too many Jets. Yeah, yeah. Dick, I'm sorry. <laughs> God love you. Yeah. Rest in peace. He, but he loved Jed, man. I guess he was a huge Jed head. I guess so. And it just—I I think they just played it so much and through every era of their career that it's like you can't—you can't avoid it. Jed is always there, yeah. halfway through the second, yeah. halfway through the first set, waiting to pounce. So, yeah, I mean, <laughs> this this part of the first set—I I don't know if it's a bathroom break, but it's—it's it's definitely the part that kind of makes my attention drift because yeah. it follows up yeah. Jed with Minglewood, which is another song that they just played like their entire career and it changed a lot, but it's not one that I'm particularly ever that excited to hear. And this is yeah. another one that is less disco-y. I don't think it was on volume three, but you know, they played it in May 77 and they would disco it up. And this one has cranked down the disco and is just kind of a sloppy version overall <laughs> and so it's just oh it's yeah just filling up space a little bit well and i think this song for me it has to be at the start if it's in the middle it doesn't really work for me like they mm-hmm. they opened um cornell 77 opens with this yeah and i actually like the version from that um it, it's always a cool way to open a show i think if you start with a vocal and then kick into the song which is what they do on minglewood um, but in the middle of the set, especially coming after Tennessee Jed, like, oh, okay. You know, this is not where, really what I'm looking for uh, at that point. Um, but for me, like, it starts to turn around with the next song, Sugary. Mm-hmm. And I feel like Sugary was one of the stars of 77. It's a song that they played a lot, and it was drawn out more than it was in a lot of years. They would often go 
to the 15, 16, 17. I think there's like an 18 minute version of some from some show that I heard once. Uh, this one is uh, 14 minutes, a little about 14 and a half minutes. Mm-hmm. Um, and I really like, you know, I've been ripping on the rhythm section so far. I really like what they do on this song where they bring the song down. I think it's at about like maybe the four minute mark or so. Yeah. And and then it builds up to a nice conclusion and then they bring it back down again and it gets a little spacey and quiet and uh, which is different than a lot of the sugaries I've, I've heard mm-hmm. uh, from that year. So for me, like because of that difference, it, it, it stands out. And like, obviously there's the version from Dick's picks three, right? I feel like I feel like you're more you prefer that one, right? Yeah. Like I mean that was the that was my favorite part of volume three even, where I was never a big sugary fan and that one just totally blew me away this time around. Uh I guess I've just aged into loving sugary and I really like this one too. I think it's not quite the volume three version. Uh again right. kind of a we're kind of broken records on this show, but there's not really like a single song on this dicks picks that is like a best ever in the best ever conversation <laughs> i think i saw a lot of people right, that really like right. the jack straw and think that that's one of the best jack straws ever but uh in this case like the sugary it, it can't help but pale by comparison to the volume three version but it's still i mean it's it's still great and yeah you're right the dynamics of how they played the song in 77 are so interesting and so well like executed uh and yeah you're right the drummers like i i i pointed them out too like and that's the second solo of sugary the drummers do a great job of ratcheting up the intensity uh behind jerry the whole the whole band is doing a really amazing job behind jerry's solos there's even a little part i noticed in the second solo where jerry and bob kind of do this like guitar harmonization like a like a a poor man's thin Lizzy right. thing, which you know the dead were never going to be able to do pull off that thin Lizzy like perfect unison harmony guitar harmony uh but it, it's fun that they give that a try and yeah it's it's a really pleasant listen all around
And then this disc in this set wraps up with Promised Land. <laughs> and the first berry, the first half of the double berry yeah. from this show. And, you know, look, we've talked a lot. Of, I mean, it, Chuck Berry covers are a staple of Dick's Picks, so we've talked a lot about Chuck Berry. This, I think, is the best Chuck Berry cover that the Dead do. It's the one that feels the most like a Grateful Dead song. Um, and, uh, you know, I would just say this is another song that I prefer as an opener more than as a, a set closer. Um, especially coming up after that sugary, I felt like that would have been a more satisfying end to the set for me personally. But again, I think if you were in the room and you heard them do this song, it, it probably would have kicked ass. So I, I, I get why they did it. And I think in that context, it works fine. Yeah, getting back to your point about this being, a, uh, you know, a holiday party vibe. You, you, you can't walk off the set with the sugary. You got to throw in a, a, a Bobby, a Bobby Berry to get people. Bobby Berry, baby. Yeah, to get people in an intermission. So, yeah, it's fine. It's promised land. It's good. <laughs> <laughs> uh, let's move over to disc two. Yeah, which opens up with set. another... Uh, Long, mysteriously missing, great song from the Grateful Dead catalog, which is Bertha. One, yes. Another one of my favorite yes. Dead songs that just hasn't shown up yet. Oh yeah, who doesn't love Bertha? You gotta look. If you, I hate it when people say this, but I will say it about Bertha that if you don't like Bertha, <laughs> you cannot like the Grateful Dead. Yeah. Uh, just had you know, it's, it's such a great up-tempo rock song. Great Jerry Garcia vocal. Um, you know, I love the soloing in it. Um, I love the sort of downshifting into the chorus Mm -hmm. where it slows down. Mm -hmm. Very clever. Um, We should say that before they go into Bertha, there's a really interesting tease that they're doing. I I guess it starts with Keith. Then I think Phil mimics him a little bit. I don't know if the guitar players play it too, but they're playing the theme from Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Yeah, the little melody the aliens use to communicate with the humans. So, yeah, I think Jerry might play it a little bit. Uh, yeah, it kind of bounces around the band, though, before Bertha starts, yeah. As we mentioned earlier, that movie came out in November, and um, I, I wonder if they went as a band to see <laughs> Close Encounters. Yeah. That would have been—it could have been like a band trip. <laughs> good for band, trip, uh, and then go. Good for band solidarity. Yeah, exactly. Like a team building exercise. Let's go see Close Encounters right. I- together. Um, when I heard that tease, I don't know if, you, if you're familiar with this show, but like it made me think of. A show they played, I guess, what, like three weeks after this or so, on January 22nd, 1978, there's a show that they played, I think it was in Oregon, it was released as Dave's Picks 23, mm-hmm. where they are in the middle of a jam, I can't remember what song they're playing on, but they also, 
end up quoting the Close Encounters stand yeah. during that show as well. Yeah, I've heard that show before. I mean, it makes total sense too in the uh, the recurring theme of Jerry as a sci-fi horror geek that he would love Close Encounters, right. uh, especially as like a sort of early example of sci-fi being t- taken seriously. Right? That's sort of why Close Encounters is special. Is it was a hard sci-fi oh, yeah. movie. Uh, instead of a silly Definitely. sci-fi B movie before that. Oh yeah, well, you know, obviously like this was the year of Star Wars, you know, Star Wars came out in May mm-hmm. and then Close Encounters is, you know, I think like the thinking man sci-fi. Exactly. In, yeah. As opposed to like the kiddie movie sci-fi of Star Wars. Um I got to say too, this is another song where I love Keith. Keith his piano is actually pretty prominent mm-hmm. throughout this version and he sounds great. Yeah. And um, again, it just makes me wish that he was always this audible because <laughs> I feel like maybe that would have been good for his own self-esteem. I mean, Keith was was famously insecure about himself, no matter, you know, in spite of being a very talented musician. And clearly the focus in The Dead was always going to be Jerry and like the people in the crew all revered Jerry and no one was ever going to upstage him. But, you know, I think it would have been better for the band to have a more prominent keyboard guy to play off of him. And it seemed like later on in the band with Brent and then with Hornsby, you know, it seemed like that was a lesson that they learned. Um, But with Keith, it seemed like he was obscured maybe a little bit more than he should have been. Yeah. And it, you know, you don't know how much of that was his personality versus the band's approach to him. But yeah, Bertha is a song where the piano really helps too because it has that sort of bouncy quality to it that works so well uh with keith or with you know hornsby later on uh yeah it's you're exactly right i mean i feel like we're getting a lot of like europe 72 songs coming back into this set and it's just kind of nice to hear you know i love europe 72 and i love the original uh quote-unquote versions of these songs that appear on there but it's uh it wasn't bertha on skull and roses oh you may be right maybe i'm mixing them up i think i think it's yeah i mean the same era but i'm pretty sure it's skull and i think it's the first song on skull and roses but it you know uh, just the way that these songs have sort of rounded out into maturity where right. by the by the end of the 70s the the dead are you know they're they are very like sort of competent uh folk rock band i don't know if bertha kind of qualifies as folk rock but it has that sort of up-tempo like shine to it that the dead weren't really capable of at the beginning of the 70s and now you know songs like bertha songs like ramble on rose songs like brown eyed women have really kind of hit this you know mature more mature level that fits in with a lot of the sort of west coast pop rock that was coming out at this time as well yeah i mean bertha is i think along with being just a fun song to hear live that is going to get the crowd going and feeling like they want to party it's just it's a good pop song too Mm -hmm. it has a good melody and it's very catchy exactly yeah uh so yeah it's, it's really great to hear now the song they play next good lovin this is another example of what i was saying earlier about like the dead having two song sequences that they would go to a lot. Yeah. And this was a segue that they went to. I 
just in this run, I think they do this at the beginning of the 1227 show. Yeah, they kick off the run with this same segue. And a version of Bertha, which is nowhere near as good, it's kind of a calamity. If you want to hear the, right. the if you want to hear the drummers like completely forget how to play a particular song, <laughs> uh, cue up that Bertha because they I think have no idea what they're doing for the entire run, which makes it an interesting version, I guess. But yeah, I think starting in seventy six, li- maybe even they started doing this Bertha drop into Good Lovin', where it's kind of a segue. It's kind of just like the last note of Bertha is the first note of Good Lovin' type of thing. It's a pre planned segue. And yeah, I don't know. The Bob Goodlovin is a little tough to swallow. I mean, it's it's okay at this point. We heard a really great one a couple episodes ago in uh, right at, at Harper College. It's so it, this one is never gonna never gonna hold up. And this is the arrangement that would be on Shakedown Street next year. So that's also kind of kind of a timid, <laughs> like overly slick version of it, but. Yeah, it's yeah, yeah. It's a high energy it's song. It's fine. I, I mean, yeah. I mean, I enjoyed it because this was the start of our summer tour, and like, I hadn't. I took a little break from the dead. I'm like, you know, what? I'm gonna sit in for good loving. I'll, <laughs> I'm gonna enjoy it. I mean, you mentioned the Harper College version. That was pretty revelatory for me because I've always rolled my eyes at good loving. Mm-hmm. Um, do they also? Is that also on four? Do they play that uh, the, the Fillmore East one? Maybe they don't. I mean, I feel like um, no, I, I don't think they do actually. But I got the the, the Picks Eight one was a big deal just because they actually turned it into a jam vehicle and like it ends up being really cool. Mm-hmm. I think that version's like 10, 15 minutes long. Yeah. I mean, it's pretty long. Whereas this is just like the standard five minute, you know, party song type thing, and it's just weird because. Good Lovin' just seems like a set closer. It doesn't seem like you're going to play this the second... I guess we're just used to the second set being the jammy set. Mm-hmm. So to hear Good Lovin' so early maybe seems a little bit weird. But again, you know, like we've been saying, this is a holiday show. So they were probably loving Good Lovin' at the Winterland. <laughs> Uh, at the end of December, and and this um, this is also where like uh, must have been the roses and sunrise would have fallen if it had been a complete show. Oh. And it, to play you know devil's advocate to our argument earlier, the the pacing of the set gets even weirder if you include that in there because must have been the roses. Oh, is absolutely, a really slow song. Uh, sunrise is you know it's not really slow, not really fast, but it's an oddity uh, for the Grateful Dead. So right. get, like. You know, good loving not being an, uh, a set closer, uh, not only not being a set closer, but also going right into a very slow Jerry Ballad and a Donna feature <laughs> makes for a, right. a, a strange dynamic at the start of this set. So it, yeah, even though it's kind of sad they're not there, like by, by cutting them out, Dick sort of created a, a, a little bit better show flow here, I think. One thing that's been interesting going through these Dix picks is realizing that, in a way, a lot of these shows are better when they are edited and maybe even packaged together into more of like a highlight reel of, of like a certain run. Yeah. I feel like with a lot of these albums that we've talked about, because yeah, I think we're both generally purists, you know, like we, we want to listen to like the tape as it was and... Um, 
not really maybe feeling like the show should be edited, but in a way, like for these albums, you feel like we're going to talk about this later on. I mean, I think there's certain parts of 1229 that you could have cut out and you could have put in parts of some of the other shows from the New Year's Eve run. Mm-hmm. At, at, Cause I don't think there's like a, a show that's like head and shoulders above the rest. Yeah. There's like elements of each show. That's like pretty cool that I would have maybe plopped in here. I'll say for instance, there's a really good Mississippi half step from, I think, 1230, yeah. which is where they're going to be pulling some of the other shows for, songs from later on. Um, yeah, and I... Uh, to say, huh. knowing, our ha- knowing our half-step history <laughs> or my half-step history, but I really like the version uh, from 1230. I would have plopped that in maybe. Yeah, and I was really here. drawn to the 1227 Peggio, which I thought was another oh, really yeah. great 77 oh. Peggio that maybe you could have dropped in instead of that uh, Jed <laughs> Minglewood. Uh, doldrums oh, in the first the set. Jet out of there. <laughs> oh yeah, it would have been beautiful. Yeah, that yeah that Peggio was great. Yeah, great another great Jerry guitar solo. Um, so from Good Lovin', you know, because we dropped Kick, must have been the Roses and Sunrise out of the set. We go right to playing in the band, right. and uh, this is a version that is um, what is it? I think it's about fifteen minutes, yeah, or so, which is. Longer than a plane in the band that you would get from, like, say, like 72, mm-hmm. but shorter than what you would get, like, what the song became in 73 and 74, when it would sometimes be 25, 30 minutes. There's the famous 45 minute version that's on the Pacific Northwest uh, box set. Right. Um, I actually like this version. There's some really cool things happening. I really like what Keith plays starting at about the 725 mark there's some real kind of cool jazzy piano chords that he's playing at that time it's really beautiful kind of rises out of the swirling mix of guitars that's going on at that point um although it feels like this is going somewhere that it doesn't ultimately go Mm -hmm. yeah i mean it for me i i like yeah, you were talking about the length of different playing in the bands, and I like fifteen minutes is kind of my sweet spot for playing in the band. I think because it's not a song that, despite having some really long versions, those versions don't really cover a lot of ground. I think like sometimes they just like sit in the ooze of the playing in the band jam for, you know, a very long time, and my my attention sort of comes and goes as that goes on but this one it, it it does that for about the first 10 minutes and then it gets into like a more free section and a very another very quiet section where the drummers really sit back uh and it does this sort of free jazz dead that we talked about uh back in the alexander palace version uh but it only right. but it only does it for about five minutes which is about the right amount of time for that for me <laughs> before it it moves into something else so yeah i said i noted that this is sort of my goldilocks version of playing in the band so far where it's not too short well, the thing it's I was not gonna too ask, long it's just like a good middle ground for the song right yeah i mean i i like it i like it when it goes a little bit longer especially in 73 and 74 which i feel like that's the peak of this song um where the dead was drawing it out and you know, like that Dick's Pick 7 version is is a bit longer than this. And I am I was never bored during that. I was just totally riveted during that whole jam. Mm-hmm. So um, 
but it's interesting. Like, should this should the rest of this set be considered playing in the band with like other songs tucked inside of it? Yeah, because they return to it throughout, right? And then they end with it. Yeah. So is this? So is the entire thing playing in the band? Well, that's or is it just like? Yeah. Or just like recurring motifs in the middle of other songs. <laughs> That's what really wins me over with this plan is I I really do like that they played around with splitting it up and stretching it out over entire sets or shows or sometimes even entire runs of shows. Like sometimes they wouldn't play the uh the reprise of playing in the band until the next night <laughs> if they hadn't closed it out the previous <laughs> night. That's the kind of like set list. Uh Tom Foolery that I really like from the dead. It's nice and playful and pl- right. playing in the band. Well, you know why you like that. Well, you know why you like that. Well, it's very tweet. It's very tweezer re- reprise. I uh, know. I know. Here. It's, it, it's <laughs> the dead doing a tweezer reprise here. I mean, I guess it is, but it also is, you know, they, they got there first and I was hearing these things like right. at hearing fish and dead the, the first summer when I was getting into both of them. And I, I'm sure I came across some dead shows where they did this and it's just like a fun different way to imagine how a concert runs. Right. And how your songs work in a concert that a lot of bands like they wouldn't even think of this idea of splitting off a song or coming back to the song repeatedly over the course of the set. And I'm glad that this is the first, that that's what jumps out with this version is it's the first time we've got it in the Dick's pick series where they do that with playing and they'll do that a ton over the rest of their history. Uh, But everything we've had before has been like a discreet self-contained playing in the band. And this is our first sort of look at what that, uh, what they could do with it if they decided to sort of make it the recurring motif of the set, as you said. So, the, I think my this first fifteen minutes of playing I like, uh, but I I really really like that it comes back a couple more times before the set's over. Oh yeah, I was just gonna say I think my favorite example of that from the dead is when they did that for that ninety one show that they released uh, from Giant Stadium, like where they keep teasing <laughs> right, where because it it's the same thing, but they're also trolling the audience. <laughs> like they think they're gonna get a dark star. It's like no, we're gonna do something else. Yeah. Um, so they're playing, playing in the band, the song starts to wind down and then all of a sudden you start hearing the opening chords of China, Cat, Sunflower, and you're like, oh, you hear the crowd starting to get excited because they know they're going to get the first China writer in more than three years. Uh, last one played at Winterland as well, like from that, I guess, <laughs> yeah. retirement show. Exactly, you know, from like that run, show yeah. That, 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 from that run. Um, and you know, we were speculating earlier about how, you know, this bust out was one of the things that made this show legendary among deadheads. And it, and we're both, I think feeling like that had a lot to do with maybe why this was picked. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's, it seems like that is what makes this show stand out from the others, uh, from a, on a historical basis. And, it it is really fun to hear. Like it, you know, three years honestly isn't. <laughs> it's not that long for the song to be gone, uh, but it's part of what you know makes this Winterland vibe so special. Is that you hear the crowd recognize it within like three notes. <laughs> like it is so fast, the crowd noise starts building up that they're playing China Cat, and this is at a time where nobody was keeping set lists or statistics or all that stuff. So it wasn't like people are like, "Oh, it's been exactly, you know, 135 shows since the last China Cat," but 
like they played the last one at Winterland in 74. All the Winterland crowd was like tapped in enough to know that they hadn't played it since. And then they were playing it again in 1977 and people just like lose their minds. Like you don't really hear the crowd that much on this set. Uh, but they're very loud <laughs> when China Cat starts. Yeah. Uh, and it's uh, well, that's it's an exciting moment. Those songs too, it's so, they're so associated with like the 60s era dead, obviously. The dead's roots are in San Francisco, so I'm sure there was like some nostalgic value for a lot of people in the audience to hear this get busted out. Mm-hmm. I was reading about this show in the book, This is a Dream We All Dreamed, because that guy I was talking about, Nash, the guy who's writing the Satchel Page musical with Bob, he was at that show and he was talking about how like Jerry had wandered off stage during the plane jam. Okay. And then he started playing the opening to China, like when he was still off stage and like he can like walk out <laughs> while playing it. Like very dramatic. Yeah. And I'm sure that added to the reaction from the audience. Sure. You know, again, we, we like to joke about how the dead don't really have great stage craft or like stage moves, but that's an example of like them milking a moment with <laughs> some good stage blocking you know like jerry emerging from the shadows to play uh the opening of china i you know this version i mean look it's always great to hear this right uh so you know these songs i mean but you know like not the best version obviously uh i don't think they killed it i think like by the by rider it's really kicking off and is like uh, maybe even that transition part Mm -hmm. You know, I think that I think they're pretty well locked in by then, but like the beginning is a little bit rough. Yeah, the song part of China Cat is pretty rusty. Jerry screws up some words. It sounds very strange to me, and must have sounded really strange at the time to hear it with the two drummer post hiatus setup. Because if you think about it, they played it a ton with just Billy in the early 70s right and it was of course like a late 60s early 70s staple when mickey was still in the band the first time uh but this is a very different band playing the song uh in 77 than even back in 74 so it 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 sounds a little stiff uh coming out of the gate but i it is kind of a miracle how well that china writer transition is played because you would think if anything would be rusty it would be that part which is so reliant upon the band's telepathy with each other and chemistry. 
in getting from one song to the other without really any seam showing as far as when one song ends and the, the and rider begins uh but they they really nailed that part and then once they're into i know you rider it sounds like it's it's totally back so yeah you're right, right. i think it, it it's historical value is better than its musical value and it's also already for me being overshadowed by the dick's picks 12 version which is possibly the greatest china writer of all time so it's you know right. looking forward to that one you're like this one eh, it's china writer it's a it's a good representative but it's not it's not all that but yeah i mean it's really just there for that cheer i think <laughs> more than anything else yeah and i mean this is the ultimate example of the thing we keep talking about in this show like where the tape is only half the story, maybe only like 25% of the story. Like if you were actually there and they played that, that would have been pretty awesome. Mm-hmm. And to me, like at the beginning, I think maybe why it sounds ragged is they were probably just really excited. Yeah. To me, it sounds like they're playing it a little bit too fast. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it just sounds like it's the adrenaline of uh, the, the crowd reaction and it probably just the electricity in the room. And it's like they needed a minute or two to settle down. And then by the transition, they're, they're locked in again. And then the rest of it is good. But like the beginning, it's like, holy shit, we're playing China Rider. <laughs> People are loving it. And, you know, it's, it's, it's a little ragged, I think, maybe for that. That's my theory. That's my theory anyway, yeah. if I have to psychoanalyze the dead there. Um, next song, China Doll. I think this is another debut. Have they played? I don't remember this song showing up in any other dicks no this is the first yeah first and this i have to say is maybe the biggest surprise for me how much i enjoyed it (laughs) um keith is doing like a is it like a fake harpsichord sound i think so he's been using an electric piano like off and on throughout this show and uses it a lot elsewhere in the run too i think it's just like he cranked up one particular setting on the electric piano so that it almost sounds like a harpsichord uh but it's yeah it's, yeah it's not subtle it's really up there almost like brent levels of uh hey here's a wacky keyboard sound but i like it which i love yeah i think it really adds I, a lot to this I, song which can bore me in later eras uh, because it, right. it is a very slow, very dreamy song. Uh, but what I liked, well, it, the- it reminded me of like when Tom Constanton was in the band in the late 60s and they would do Mountains on the Moon and he would play basically, I think, a real harpsichord at that point. Uh, it gives it like right. a like, really cool late 60s psychedelic feeling that isn't really present elsewhere in the show because this is very much late 70s dead, not late 60s dead. So I kind of like the, right. the trippier... Uh, dimension it added to it and I mean this is definitely the song it's in the you know it, it's playing like this, the morning dew Stella Blue Warfret role mm-hmm. in the second set although it's like a little bit early for that yeah. usually those songs come a little bit later but it's like the dramatic ballad that's slow and has a killer Jerry Garcia guitar solo in it and I think it's definitely the weakest out of all those songs, like you'd rather hear probably Morning Dew or Stella Blue. But again, you know, when I looked at the, at the set list and I saw China Doll, I was a little worried that it would just be kind of a crawl that felt longer than it actually was. But I think because of Keith and, and also, you know, Jerry comes through with a really good guitar solo, it, it delivered for me. So I really liked it. 
Um, yeah, it also gives you that then they go weird back. double China in the set list. I don't know if that was intentional exactly. or subliminal, but the double China, the double China to go with the, the double, double berry. berry. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Uh, yeah, that's uh, well. And what's that one song? Don't they have a song that? Uh, I guess that's a Brent era song. That was like that Chinatown shuffle. <laughs> yeah. What's that song called? I think that was a Big Ben song. Actually, didn't Big Ben do Chinatown? Oh, it's Big Ben. Yeah. That's right. That's Pigpen. So, okay. Well, they couldn't have done it. Then, but, you know, <laughs> if they could have somehow done a triple China. Maybe Dead & Co. should do a triple China. <laughs> you know, have, have John Mayer do the Pigpen oh, thing. Boy. Really, really, really piss off the heads <laughs> with that one. Um, but yeah, it, it, it sort of in, slides real easily back into playing in the band. And this is what, like, we were talking about yeah. earlier, like how fun it is to have this recurring theme and what amazes me is that playing in the band, you know, it, it's famously a song in a weird time signature. Like it's in ten four. It was originally called the main ten in an earlier version of the song, and it was sort of like the eleven where they like had this jam and this weird time signature, and it eventually turned into a song. Uh, so it's it's a strange song to play this role. I feel like where it can just sort of like bubble off of any given song because it has such a weird. Uh, time signature and a weird tone to it and it's almost like they can play it too without actually playing the signature riff that marks playing in the band like you just kind of know that it's playing based on the mood all of a sudden and i really like that about it's kind of like that middle quantum zone between china and rider but then you pull it out and you drop it into different parts of the set uh so you're never quite sure what song you're in and i think that's just a really cool disorienting creative thing that the dead did what's well, interesting to me because you know they they go into this plane jam it's only about a minute and a half yeah and then they go into drums which is not very long that's only about two and a half minutes yeah. and I'll, I'll go back to what i was saying earlier about how this show to me being a relatively straightforward rock show because normally you would think maybe this would be the part of the set like where things are going to get kind of freaky and noisy and spacey but it's actually fairly swift before you know they get into not fade away yeah, uh, you know, like there's not a whole lot of jamming, really, in this show at all. No, there's particularly yeah in the 29th part. I think there might be as much in the four songs they picked from the 30th as <laughs> there is in the entirety of right. the 29th. And we get into not fade away, and I want to bring this up to you because I feel like people have maybe said this to us in the comments, and it made me kind of rethink about how we approach this song because not fade away typically it comes. Toward the end of the second set. And I feel like we both like this song, but neither one of us are ever going over, you know, going crazy about it. Or we're, we're never over the moon about it. Do you think we underrate Not Fade Away? Yeah, I, I guess so. I like, I, I was over the moon about the volume two version of Not Fade Away, uh, which had the going down the road feeling bad in the middle of it. Like, right. uh, so that, that one really blew me away and is one of the best things I've heard from the whole series so far, but it's another one that pops up a lot. And I agree that it's, it's almost like, like a, a cousin to Tennessee Jed in a way that we like a lot more, I guess, a, a preferred cousin to Tennessee Jed where it, it shows up a lot and it seems like it's doing something really interesting, but I can't quite put my finger on it a lot of the time. And because of that, it tends to slip my mind when I'm thinking of show highlights. I also think it's, 
it's very much a song that sounded better in the room than it does on tape and right. it, you know yeah, w- it becoming it will increasingly become sort of an audience participation song <laughs> as the dead goes on uh so it, 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 it it's a crowd pleaser and that's not always gonna stand out when you're listening you know with the remove of 40 years yeah, like when I listen to Not Fade Away, and this version on this album, I think it's really good. But again, it's not ever blowing me away. When the Dead is in this mode, it reminds me of like a lot of '70s live albums mm. by like boogie rock bands yeah. of that time. You know, like um, like Mahogany Rush or you know, <laughs> uh, you know uh, the Outlaws, or you know, like maybe like second tier blues bands and now it really sounds like i'm not (laughs) you know like how where it's just like a good time rock band getting on a groove on like a oldie that everyone knows yeah and and basically just so and basically just like soloing over it like in kind of like a fun way Uh where like you said if you're in the room it's a lot of fun it's good time party music but it's like not interesting necessarily you know you're not like exploring or discovering anything new it's just like kind of like a fun thing to hear a good thing to like dance to like just good time boogie rock um which i like up to a point but like with the dead you usually are looking for something a little bit more than that so i like it for what it is but yeah it's never something that i'm totally excited to hear right um in a grateful dead context and then after that we wrap up with the grand conclusion of playing in the band and uh they stick the landing pretty well here, like coming back and then they have the big triumphant close to this part of the set. Yeah. Yeah. What, and uh, what it, again, the question remains, is this all playing <laughs> or is it just playing motifs? Is it still playing in the band? Yeah. No. And it's, uh, I feel like they, I don't know if they like caught themselves off guard with the play and reprise. Cause they, they kick back into it and there's no Donna scream. <laughs> Like, I feel like maybe Donna wasn't expecting them to come back into it <laughs> so soon and didn't make it out in time. She's, once they start singing, playing in the band again, she's there, but there's no big Donna yelp <laughs> when they kick back in. Right. Into it. Yeah, like, when I was listening to it, it did feel a little like it wasn't totally planned yeah. that they were going to come back again. And it just made me think of, like, how premeditated the whole thing was. Like, did they say... Hey, we're just we're gonna kind of weave this into all the other songs, or was it just Jerry deciding to go back to it right. because it didn't really end the first time? Well, uh, certainly it sounds but, more organic than uh, your "Birth of Good Lovin'" type of segue at this point. So it's uh, right, which we appreciate. Yeah. I think we appreciate that they were they were trying something. It is it's probably the riskiest part of the show. Uh-huh, sure, a show that doesn't have a lot of risk. Yeah. it is like the riskiest part. Uh, going over to disc three. Right, so and Terrapin Station. Man, you you finish with that big play and reprise, and then you hit him with the Terrapin Station. That's uh, I know, man. That's 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 some bonus Grateful Dead for you, right there. Winterland, baby. <laughs> exactly. Winterland, baby. Uh, New Year's Eve run, and it's you know kind go of a, go home. kind of another Dick's Picks debut because you know the the Volume Three Terrapin Station famously is jet like starts midway through the song <laughs> which is part of what's cool about it but also part of what's a little frustrating about it to me because 
the you know the whole lady with a fan part of terrapin is amazing like about as good as the dead god right. and yet another amazing uh robert hunter lyric uh in this set like a lot of my favorite robert hunter songs i think are included in this show so that definitely softens me up for this this particular pick as well yeah and you know going back to like one of our recurring themes of this episode what I really love about this version of Terrapin Station is the big rock climax, mm-hmm. which I think they really hit home. And that's always like the great thing about this song. It is like this prog rock epic, essentially. And it really pays off big time at the end. Um, but I really just love how they really lean into that at the end of this song. And all things considered, I feel like just end with this song. <laughs> it's such a satisfying end. And again, this is like a this is a person listening to a tape, not being in the room. I'm like, Johnny be good coming after that. It's such a like, like why do we need this? You know, like it's, I I've gone to Valhalla and now I'm, you know, back in bar band territory. Yeah, I mean uh, after this. You know, in fairness it was the encore, so they did leave and right. come back and play Johnny Be Good. And it's, you know, I, I think Bob just always wants to send people home in a good mood, right? So. Yeah, exactly. The, Which, yeah, and, and again, like, I understand it from the actual show standpoint. Like, it's a great way to send people out. It's a good time party song. Um, and, and at least it's not around and around. Yeah. I, you know, I did appreciate that we've introduced, far, right? yeah, we've introduced a new Barry, uh, to the Barry catalog. So we're up to four now, right? <laughs> that we can hear. So yeah, it's, it's, it was fine. Yeah. So now we're going to go into the 1230 part and we alluded to this earlier. I mean, I feel like 1230, uh, from a performance standpoint, is maybe as good as twelve twenty nine. You know, it doesn't have the China Rider. It has a Scarlet Fire, um, so it doesn't have that uniqueness to it. But like the part of the set that they've included here, uh, including like one, especially like one song in particular. Um, I mean, I like as much as anything that was in twelve twenty nine. I mean, probably more so actually. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, looking at the twelve thirty show, it has a weirdly short second set, and I wonder if that's why it was sort of disqualified, uh, or you know, twelve twenty nine was preferred over it, because you're right, it's it's got a pretty similar. The first set, I mean, it's not totally overlapping. They both they both have looks like rain, but it they're if you listen to the show, it's like just as like competent and enjoyable as 1229. Uh, so I don't know if it was just that 1230 was a little bit shorter and didn't really fit as nicely on three discs or whether he, you know, Dick was trying to get in loser and Bertha and all these songs that hadn't appeared on a Dick's picks before, but yeah, I'm, I'm pretty happy with his decision to just take the, this really nice four song suite from 1230 and plopping it on the end here because i think it takes what would be it's maybe sort of an underwhelming dick's picks and bumps it up to pretty good yeah well it starts off with estimated profit which and all these songs are from the second set uh, of 1230 and um you made this note in our outline and i agree with you 
I mean, is it fair to say that estimated profit was better in the Brent era? Yeah. Than it was in the seventies. I, I, you made that point. I, I think I agree with you. Yeah. I mean, I'm surprising myself here <laughs> with that point. This is sort of like the Stockholm syndrome now of having dove into the Brent era and come back alive. Uh, is that there are songs that I think I prefer Brent era versions of and estimated as one of those. Uh, and I think it comes down to, we talked about this, you know, back when we talked about why they brought in Brent uh, in, instead of Keith, uh, that he can add, he, he would play more keyboards and add more different uh, keyboard colors uh, to these songs. And once you go, once you hear those like late 70s, early 80s estimated profits where Brent's got that really early synthesizer parts on it uh, and it pushes it into this really cool spacey territory in the jam uh it's a little bit hard to go back to just uh keith on piano because i do feel like the song is yeah. much more in the box at that stage right. and maybe i don't know if that's you know the keith brent difference or whether the band just got more comfortable playing with it because it's still a very new song at this point but yeah this version like left me a little bit uh wanting because and now i expect estimated profit to get into these weird new wavy spacey 80s jams yeah the keyboards really add a lot to it i think without that it feels a little uh empty yeah it's like a little there's a little too much space here and there's like it, you just want that other element so there's a little bit more going on i mean there's always the great jerry guitar solo that when that arrives it's like this moment of triumph and there's always a rush for me when he does that but um yeah the the brent factor he really does bring a lot to that song and um so yeah, I, that was the weak part of it for me, for sure. But I still enjoyed it. Mm. It, it was fine. Um, Eyes of the World is next. And I think I've said this before. This is my favorite Grateful Dead song. And I'll say that like 73, 74, Eyes of the World is my peak Grateful Dead experience. Like that's my favorite Grateful Dead music. Uh, like, so, like those Eyes of the Worlds from that time. And... Eyes for me in 77 is more of a mixed bag because I feel like this is where they're starting to play it like too fast. And I mean, we, we've talked about like in the 80s, this song gets <laughs> super fast <laughs> at times in a comical kind of way. Alarmingly fast. Um, yeah. Alarmingly fast. And, you know, we had a, a version of the song on Dick's Picks 3 and we talked about how that had a disco feel to it. And also played pretty fast. This is actually not as rapid, I think, as that version. And you and I agreed on this, that the highlight of this version, I feel like it's like a pretty good version. And then like the last, say, like five, six minutes, Mm -hmm. it goes in a totally unexpected direction. Foreshadowed in, I think, the sugary from the first set of the 1229 show. Hmm does a similar thing where it gets really spacey. The rhythm section pulls back yeah. and it's a, it, it's a beautiful jam that I, I don't recall hearing before for eyes of the world. Yeah. And it's my favorite part of this album. I'd say hands down. Yeah, it was definitely, yeah, I, I, I think I would agree with you on that. It's, it was the part that jumped out at me the most because it was so unexpected to hear this coda 
to eyes and yeah you're right like a huge it makes a huge difference that there is some restraint in the drumming and i feel like even in the song part of eyes of the world i think mickey is on some sort of percussion instrument or is at least like playing less of his like traditional kit than normal so you almost get that one drummer dead feel again uh where it's billy you know digging into the swing that makes those 73 and 74 eyes of the world so great uh without having to to play off another percussionist so yeah when they like sort of go off the cliff into this spacey very sort of nervous like staccato jam (laughs) uh for the last few minutes of it uh it's just a really cool different side of the dead than i would expect to hear in 77 for sure uh it really really surprised me Another oldie but goodie, St. Stephen, which was a song that, I mean, playing with, like, uh, I guess I'm curious, like, how often they would have played that in 77. I'm guessing not very often. Well, yeah, I mean, it shows up at Cornell, and I think it... it, Oh, that's right. Yeah, it got a lot of play. It's one of these comeback years for St. Stephen, where it came back, but it was much slower, a much different arrangement. And it's pretty divisive, I think, the slower St. Stephen. And it's definitely not my preferred arrangement of the song. Like, I'm always going to go for, like, the crazy, live dead, ecstatic versions of St. Stephen. Uh, But, you know, this one I liked. Like, it kind of suited the mood of these shows, I think. 
this laid back winterland feel that we've been talking about over and over again uh you know sort of taking their time and moving through the song very slowly it makes makes you realize what a silly song it is because <laughs> we've talked about all the great right. all the great hunter lyrics in this show but uh saint stephen is very early on in hunter writing lyrics and it's very i'm i'm tripping on acid in the 60s baby like here's some random words uh <laughs> but right. uh but yeah this I, I thought this one was nice and plays a similar role to the cornell version i think where it's just this very stately uh version of the grateful dead uh firing at the end yeah i agree with that i mean it's a little sleepy for me like this version i don't I mean, when i think of this song and what i appreciated about it this version doesn't really have any of that i, I appreciate the the dynamics and the energy uh-huh. of this song when you take that out the lyrics come to the fore a little bit more in a way as you alluded to doesn't really suit the song like you know they are very 60 sounding lyrics and uh which is cool but like i, I feel like that just comes over better when it's delivered with a little bit more fire yeah. than this has. So yeah, it's, uh, I think it's fine. And again, I think this was a song that I'm sure people were excited to hear yeah. uh, at the time, but like for me, you know, not, not my favorite version, but you know, still pretty good. And then we go into one of the great, I guess it wasn't a set closer, but it's a closer for the album. It's a Sugar Magnolia. And, you know, I feel like Sugar Magnolia has ended a lot of Dick's picks, or it's come near the end. It has, yeah. And uh, and we never have a whole lot to say about it. <laughs> I, think it's, I think it's clear this is a good song. It's a great song. It's always fun to hear it. Um, the live versions are never terribly interesting or different, but they also always go down well. Right. You're always excited to hear it. So, you know, what more can you say than that well, about it? We can say that we prefer it to a uh, Chuck Berry cover. <laughs> For, exactly. When we get to yeah. a, a Bobby Walkoff song and yeah, it's a rear it's a weird era for Bob 77, like the next album Shakedown Street's going to have Bob singing mostly covers. Uh and I felt like he wasn't that confident as a songwriter, right? Right around here and you know, he, he could probably have just plugged in Sugar Magnolia or One More Saturday Night for all of those uh, Chuck Berry walk-offs and nobody would have complained. But yeah, so it's nice to have this as like a uh, a manufactured ending instead of the Johnny Be Good. It's interesting too that like Jerry put out a pretty great solo record in 78 that I think is actually better than... Shakedown Street? That's a Catherine of Stars, yeah. Um, and, and you know, there's some wonderful Garcia Hunter songs on there, including one of my all-time favorites, Ruben and Charisse, mm-hmm. which we've talked about on this show. And I just, I wonder if the rest of the band resented him at all for that, if they thought they were holding out, if, you, if they thought he was holding out on the rest of the band for the solo record. Because... Uh, I feel like you could have taken off some of those corny covers and put in Ruben and Charisse and, uh, and Cats Under the Stars. Title track's a really good song. Uh, but that will maybe be for another episode. Yes. To talk about. Um, we're looking ahead now. Our next episode's going to be on Dick's Picks 11. And uh, this is a 
pretty awesome day. Space, yeah. I'll say. <laughs> um, excited to dive into this one. This is September 27th, 1972, Stanley Theater in New York City. Um, the headliner of this one is is the Dark Star. Yeah. Uh, one of the great Dark Stars. And our first and real big one big, for big a while. Yeah, we've gone a long time without yeah. a big Dark Star, so that'll be nice to uh, dig back into that. Yeah. And yeah, another great China rider, and yeah, just really a lot to look forward to. So it's going to be a fun episode. And by that time, I feel like you and I will be just exactly perfect. <laughs> we have our tour opener under our belt now. Uh, you know, we could iron out. So I think we did pretty well. You know, we, we got some telepathic moments yeah like i said stumbles too second set we really were hitting our stride so <laughs> we fed off that that's crowd right. energy like, and we uh we were back that's right we you know we had that adrenaline rush during china but then by rider right we were locked in we we uh busted out hating on bob's chuck berry covers <laughs> for the first time in three months and uh yeah we brought out all the oldies yes uh, we're back i feel like uh ta- Talking about how much we're sick of Tennessee Judd is always a good <laughs> way to settle the nerves. And, uh, get, you know, get your sea legs back. It's like, all right, all right, we're we're annoyed by Tennessee Judd again. All right, it's, it feels normal. Nature is healing. Yeah. <laughs> all right, everyone. Well, thanks for listening to this episode of Thirty Six from the Vault, and uh, we'll be back with uh, Dick's Picks Eleven. Yeah. We'll see you in a couple weeks. This is Krista Makes, guitarist and vocalist for Less Than Jake, and host of Krista Makes a Podcast, a songwriting podcast where every week I'm joined by an amazing guest to break down the writing, recording, and release of one iconic song from their career. In our giant, evergreen back catalog of episodes, we've had rock legends such as Dee Snyder and Huey Lewis, punk rock favorites like Mark Hoppus, Fat Mike, and Brett Gurowitz, and up-and-coming artists of today such as Liz Stokes of the Beths, and Genesis Owusu. We've had guests from all genres and styles of music, and I guarantee that if you peruse our back catalog, you'll see several episodes that'll make you say, man, I gotta hear that. Whether you're a fan of music or a creator of music yourself, you'll take away a whole new appreciation for the songs you know and love. Chris Makes a Podcast is available for free on all the places you could possibly listen to podcasts, and new episodes come out every Monday. Bowie, 
Dylan, Marley. You've heard the names and maybe you've heard their songs, but what about the stories behind the records that made titans of music like these so universally loved and important? Join me, Josh Adam Myers, host of The 500, as each week I go through a different album from Rolling Stone Magazine's 500 Greatest Albums list from 2012 with an incredible lineup of comedians, actors, and musicians talking about how the music has impacted their lives. New episodes of The 500 come out every Wednesday. Listen now wherever you get your podcasts. 